0: Good evening and welcome to day two of the midterm executive committee meeting of the International Council on English Braille for 2022. My name is Matthew Horspool in the UK and the event is being hosted by Braille Literacy Canada and shortly we will be joined by two Canadian co-hosts tonight which will be a real treat as we look at Braille promotion and Braille music. The time currently is uh, 8.40pm in the UK, that is 2.40 p.m. Uh, No, it's not. It's 3.40 p.m. (laughs) U.S. Eastern Time. Uh, I think that's 11.40 p.m. uh, U.S. Pacific Time, but I don't think anyone's in uh, Pacific Time. Maybe they are. Someone listening will be in Pacific Time anyway. And uh, it's all sorts of different times in different parts of the world, including a very early 5.40 a.m. in Australia. So um, it's wonderful to see so many people uh, connecting at various uh, fancy time zones. We'll be getting started in about 20 minutes time. Just a quick rundown of the agenda. We'll be starting, I think, with a bit of deferred business from yesterday. Actually, it should only take about five minutes. And that is the approval of the minutes of the May 2022 uh, Executive Committee meeting. That's just the regular one, not the midterm one, just a regular um, Executive Committee meeting. Then we'll move to the Public Relations Committee report, which is being presented by Maria Stevens of New Zealand. After that, there'll be a discussion of independent efforts to create new Braille codes stroke tables. That will last for 15 minutes after the PR report and then an open discussion on the promotion of Braille. Then we will have a break. Uh, Then... We will have uh, at 21.30 UTC, so that's 10.30 pm in the UK, um, 5.30 pm, I believe, um, in US Eastern Time. We'll have an invited speaker uh, digitizing hard copy braille music, and that speaker is Catherine Rodder. Uh, who is in from the music section of the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled Library of Congress and uh, Washington, D.C. So that's a half an hour session there. And then we will have the Music Braille Committee report uh, presented by Geordie Howell from Australia. And then we'll have an open discussion on music braille. And that will take us to the end of the day, which is at midnight for me in the UK or uh, 7 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. So joining me today from the uh, Canadian hosting, uh, well, (laughs) one of our Canadian hosts, two of our Canadian hosts, in fact, uh, joining us is uh, Kim Kilpatrick and Ashley Shaw. So uh, I think we'll say hi to you individually. Hi, Kim. Nice to have you with us.
1: Thank you so much. It's so great to be here.
0: And uh, hello, Ashley. It's lovely to have you with us as well.
2: Hello. Yes, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me along.
0: So, um, Ashley, you're here for the musical side of things, which is really in the second half. Um, And so we'll talk to you for a little bit and then we'll talk to Kim about the first half. But just before we go away from you completely, um, is there anything coming up in the music bit that you're sort of particularly uh, excited about, particularly interested in, really hoping will come up?
2: So um, I'm I'm super excited about all the, the efforts that are going on across the world really to digitize um, uh, hard copy music Braille, because it's such a, it's such a rich resource that we, that we have, you know, that we have access to. Um, and just the the number of kind of skills and technological capabilities that, that are required for this process and just the ingenuity and innovation that have gone into this process of digitization are really, really fascinating to me. So I'm definitely looking forward to, to hearing all about that
0: yeah and nls is definitely the right people to be doing that presentation aren't they they've they've really done quite a lot of work to digitize their braille music collections as i understand it
2: for sure it's amazing
0: Mm -hmm. and um then of course there's the braille music report and the the discussion of braille and uh, you have a background in music Um, i'm a vocalist and uh, i was talking to you earlier and apparently you're a vocalist as well which is quite cool
2: yeah so you know definitely um mostly done kind of vocal within different types of choirs and and those sorts of things um and i play a bit of piano and flute as well so have used music braille in a few different types of settings because of course you know the use kind of differs depending on your setting and which instrument you're working with and all of that all of those fun things
0: Absolutely, and that will be brought out throughout the report, and we uh, will have a very nerdy discussion about Braille music at the end of the live stream <laughs> once uh, <laughs> once everyone's had an opportunity to uh, digest what's going on. Uh, turning our attention to the rest of the agenda and Kim Kilpatrick, who I believe are you the Secretary of Braille Literacy Canada?
1: Yes, indeed. I am the Secretary, and I'm also the Chair of the Braille Promotions Committee that we have, so we um, do a lot of workshops and uh, well, a lot of different workshops throughout the year and I used to be chair of the newsletter committee so the the braille promotion sort of side of it is a very great interest to me
0: and what's it like to promote braille because it's such a niche thing and there's so much negativity about braille isn't there
1: yeah it's hard well it depends also who you're promoting too so of course promoting to our base is is easy and so if you have a really cool workshop people like it um then there's promoting to teachers of visually impaired. They want different things, you know. Perhaps um, in terms of building, you know, skills. And and then there's also <laughs> the transcribers and the proofreaders. So it's it's an interesting mix. Um, we try also to promote to parents. Don't don't seem to have a lot of them, you know, coming to things, which is kind of sad. Because my mom learned Braille when I was really little, and I'm really glad that she did that. So. Um, but I, I think, yeah, like promoting to the public, too, is to try to really make sure that they know that Braille is not obsolete and that we use it. I use it more than I ever did, I think, with with Braille technology, Braille displays and Braille always paired with everything that I have. So I, I it is a tricky thing. It is a tricky thing to try to promote and to educate everyone about it and uh to get people excited about it, sometimes I think it can be tricky.
0: Mm. And sometimes you've got to get multiple people excited. So, certainly when I've had to promote Braille to teachers in the past, the teachers themselves have been very enthusiastic about Braille, but said, Yeah, but I can't make a use case for it for my manager. So, we can't get it approved. And, and you know, there's not enough funding for it and all of that sort of thing, which can be really difficult.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, there is this myth, which I don't know, I guess it might have started after the screen readers came in that, that Braille is dead, that we don't need Braille, everyone has audio. um, And we all mm. know here, <laughs> we all know that that's, Braille is literacy and that, that you can't spell things, you can't know punctuation, you can't um, chair meetings, you can't sing in a choir, you know, with lyrics and with Braille music and with like so many things that I do I need my braille for and I I would be it would be harder for me to do. So I, that is a, a bit of a challenge for sure and it'll be interesting to hear you know what people are doing what countries are doing um to promote braille and to to educate people about braille. And I think during COVID there was a time where you know touch was um forbidden or whatever you want to say at the beginning, you know. It, it was certainly and discouraged,
0: people, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and people were saying, oh, don't touch anything. And we said, well, wait, what about the Braille elevator buttons or the Braille signs? You know, you wouldn't ask someone cited to not read print, right? Like, you can't ask us to not touch Braille. Uh, so that was an interesting time, too, to hear. Like, no one said, actually came out and said, don't touch Braille. But, you know, there was that sort of implication, I guess. Well, that-
0: certainly, yeah, it was definitely implied, wasn't it? And, and yet, in some other ways, COVID has done wonders to improve access to braille or at least improve the, the the sort of the way in which braille is perceived. I don't know if you've found this, but certainly in the UK, you know, we've been able to do Zoom calls about braille and, you know, remote braille teaching, which of course means we've been able to reach more people and thus sort of momentum, you know, and, and the braille's on the up as far as I'm concerned at the moment
1: absolutely absolutely braille literacy Canada too and I think Natalie talked about the braille zoomers so the adult braille learners that I I helped to work with them too and all of that is picked up um your wonderful work with the list. you know a lot of us come to your workshops and your talks and your events uh, so the world is smaller, and the Braille community, you know, comes together and, and our Braille symposium, which is coming up in uh, what is it, two weeks, two weeks less, than the seventeenth of June, yeah, seventeenth yeah. of June, which really exciting, you know, and Braille trivia night afterwards. So there's so much Braille. Like I think I think we have come together in a way that we understand that there are so many people that are passionate about Braille in the world. And uh, that makes me happy, you know, that that makes me excited to keep working on promoting Braille to everybody.
0: Mm. Certainly my view is that as the world has got bigger, the Braille, as as the world has got smaller, the Braille community seems to have got bigger. I don't know, I'll open it up to either of you actually, um, Ashley or Kim, whether you want (laughs) to make any comments about that.
1: I disagree with that. I don't know what do you think ashley i
2: don't i just feel that too um i mean i think it's it's increased what's increased is our sense of community so Mm. that's a lot more difficult to have when you know there's just a handful of people who get the chance to come together in person for meetings every so often which i know is is a real privilege um and and they you know all of all of our representatives do wonderful work but Mm. for the rest of us you know uh, travel um, you know, sometimes cost prohibitive or we don't have the time and things like that. And so during during the pandemic, it's been so much easier for all of us to to access one another. Um, and so it's it's a lot, it's developed kind of the sense of community for for those of us who are, are passionate about reading Braille and teaching and learning it. Um, we now have access to one another in ways that we never did before.
1: Yeah, that's true because I wouldn't have gone to the ICB um, meeting because, you know, it was far and I wasn't on the list, you know, to go, but I, I did listen to it, which I, I don't know if I would have, I mean, I, maybe I would have, but maybe I would have listened to the podcast, but there we were at home, right. And there you are, (laughs) you know, you you got access to things that maybe you wouldn't have taken that, taken that access the
0: time. Yeah. I, I, I certainly feel that way. I think that's what I meant when I said what I said, like, I feel like, the community of people who I have access to is so much larger because the world has got smaller and and allowed us to, to talk to more people. You know, I knew about ICEB for a long time and, you know, they've previously live streamed their events and, you know, people like um, Judy Dixon and, yeah, uh, you know others within ICB. You've sort of heard of them, and you think, yeah, I'd, I'd love to meet them one day. But you know, one day is never really going to happen. And now here we are. We're all on Zoom, and so we can all just sort of get together and get so much more done.
1: Yeah, and you know what's amazing? Like to hear Judy yesterday say she's in class getting a guide dog, and you think to yourself, like in in times before, I mean, they say, how are we going to call her in? Like, how are we going to get her into this meeting? And You know, but now we know that we can do these things, like we can bring people in, bring them together. Um,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And I really hope this will kind of catalyze us too because there's so much kind of innovation and collaboration that can happen from people having access to each other, being able to, you know, a a small chat about something between a few people can all of a sudden start a new initiative or a new, you know, process or a new technology or who who even knows what. So I think we can see some, we'll start to see exciting unanticipated positive outcomes from,
1: from all this too.
0: Yeah, I think so. Well, we've got uh, just over seven minutes to go. It's 8.52 at the moment. So, I mean, it's about eight minutes to go. but it was uh, 8.52 a while ago. So I think we're very nearly on seven minutes and uh, I'm just taking a quick look at what's going on on zoom. And um, there are only three people <laughs> Uh, in Zoom at the moment, uh, but I think that's probably because most people are in the waiting room. Uh, a reminder, if you want to join on Zoom, uh, if you're listening to this live on the live stream and you want to join on Zoom, probably a bit late for today, but if you go to iceb.org register, you can fill in the form there and you can um, be sent over copies of the reports and stuff, and then you'll be sent the link for the rest of the week. If you'd like access to the reports, again, iceb.org slash register, fill in that form, and they'll be emailed to you. And if you're listening to this on the podcast and we've finished, you know, if you're listening weeks, months, even years in advance, um, you know, afterwards, um, <clears throat> you can access all of the things via icb.org. Um And so, yeah, we had about 50 people, I think, last night, which is pretty good going for a midterm, I think.
1: Yeah, and a Sunday. And a Sunday, Sunday. yeah. It's not Sunday for everyone, but on a Sunday night,
0: yeah, I think so. I think we sort of alluded to this before. Have either of you been to an ICEB event in person? No.
1: No. No, Not me. Have you, Ashley?
0: No. No. No, Not at all. Okay. I I had the opportunity to go. I didn't go in the end, uh, but I had the opportunity to go to one um, in Ireland in I think, was it 2018, that that Dublin hosted it. And, um, you know, I was reading the report and thinking, yes, I really wish I'd have gone. But I think they had maybe 30 observers in total uh, f- from memory of reading that report. So actually, you know, 50 is a small number compared to the General Assembly when we'd get around about 100 each day. But actually, considering how many people would normally observe, that's that's pretty high.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's another thing that you... I think I remember hearing after the General Assembly, there were so many more people than you would have had in person in a way. So in some ways, it was so good to have that ability to, like, Mm -hmm. I think, like Ashley said before, people, wherever they are, could participate and could, could attend. Yeah.
0: Just looking ahead to the rest of the meeting and the um, and going back to the music stuff a little bit. I said to I said about Ashley being a vocalist. Kim, do you have any musical experience at yes, all? Yes,
1: I used to be a music therapist. Well, I, I guess I still am. I guess once you are, you are. I did mostly <laughs> learning by ear, and and I guess one of the things that fascinates me about braille music is, I I grew up hating it, like uh, because I had teachers who didn't know it very well, and they learned they taught me my music by ear and again I wonder how you promote that love of braille music and that uh, that passion for it you know because I I just never had it and I wish I did because I'm um, a crazy mad keen on all things braille but braille music just has never I I know it sort of but I've never really gotten into it so maybe Ashley can uh, can encourage me (laughs) to get to get better with my braille music. But that's something I I, I wonder about. How do we get people um, passionate about braille music somehow? I don't know. How did you, Ashley? Like, how did you get into it?
2: Um, so I, I was like you as a as a child when I was you know first uh, first learning piano and then flute I didn't have teachers who knew so my braille and my music were separate that was the problem I think that's the problem for yeah, a lot of us that was me um, too
1: that was me yeah so the
2: braille you know the, the people teaching us braille didn't know music braille and the um, you know the folks teaching us music they didn't know any braille at all. Uh, and there was just like a, this gap there. And I, I see that in a lot of our kind of, you know, music braille stuff right now, the kind of need for um, new people to come in and, and kind of develop that expertise um, because, you know, we, we always need more more teachers and, and teachers are <laughs> the important part of kind of passing that those, those skills on to the next generation of, of musicians. Um, and so I kind of avoided, I think I got a book um, trying to learn music braille through one of the like instructional manuals. It was very difficult and confusing to learn by yourself without any yeah. kind of input yeah. or feedback from anyone else. Um, and, but then I eventually took one of the, um, the Hadley courses um, from the Hadley School for the Blind in the US, um, which are done by correspondence, but there is a teacher um, so you do play your exercises and send them to a teacher. So someone, someone does keep you on track and guide you through the lessons and make sure that you are understanding everything and you can ask questions. I think I just got to a point in my musical training where I couldn't survive by ear anymore.
1: No, I needed you have to, yeah, and can. I am not that theory. talented. I
2: needed to, yeah, I needed to see, like I needed to actually see the music and read it.
1: Yeah. And you have to do it for theory too. Like I did have to learn it for yes. that, but I was so rough, like it was not good and I was uh, not confident with it and, so i did what i could and then i just basically gave up on it but i think the other thing is to teach the teachers like the the music teachers a little bit about braille music so that they understand a little bit cuz it's so different than the lines and the spaces and the you know mm-hmm. what they know it's
2: yeah, the, the way that it's represented is so different, and I think too, just having like maybe this is one of the you know we know that Braille and technology can partner together well, um, if we if we help them to do so, um, and so I, I think there must be so many new opportunities now for um, you know sighted teachers and and blind music students or blind music teachers and sighted students to work together on a on a piece of music um, and have access to the print and the Braille uh, together, so. I, I hope that those <laughs> that those developments are coming along. I haven't been present in a music education space for quite a while now as an adult but um, I'm definitely very excited to hear about new developments like that because yeah we need we need the all the kind of music teachers we can get on board.
0: I would agree with that I'm just listening to everything that you're saying and resonating with so much of it. I certainly found uh, rather like you that Braille music was taught by someone whose sole purpose was to teach Braille music and and not to teach music. And also that, you know, the same rhetoric, and this is something that I only realized fairly recently, but we all, you know, hear the rhetoric all the time about how, oh, well, Braille is, you know, Braille is bad and we have to say, no, Braille is good. And yet Braille music, I had the same rhetoric, you know, oh, well, you don't need Braille music because it's really complicated and all of this sort of thing. And and I kind of believed it and I look back and I think, yeah, but why did I believe it? Because actually it's just the same as everybody's saying that Braille's complicated and it isn't really.
1: Yeah, it's a pattern. It is a pattern. Um, like Braille is, you know, like the notes are the pattern and the, mm. they add to the pattern. You know, in a way it is. It isn't that comp. But you're right. We were told that.
2: I think it's just that learning, that phase where you are not that great. So if you don't start learning music Braille at the same time as you start learning to play your instrument or to sing or whatever, you kind of have to go backwards a little bit. So I think I was doing like the Canadian Conservatory grade six piano and I was starting Braille music or music Braille. So I was playing, you know, I was not playing the same exercises for both things,
3: right? Mm -hmm. I was doing
2: music Braille, like I had to start at the beginning again and just get used to, you know. Reading each hand, playing each hand—it's—it's it's a different way that it gets encoded into memory. I'm, I don't have proof of that,
3: <laughs> yeah. but
2: um, I I—I feel like it is a different way that it encodes from when you listen to it versus when you read it in Braille. Um, and you know, but eventually, I just kind of got jealous of you know sighted folks who were playing at the same level as I was, who could just oh, pick something up and yeah. and you know and play it. Not that that's the way it works with music Braille, but it's—it's it's a lot closer. Mm. Being able to actually read the music than it is just you know hearing a piece and then trying to break it all down into its component
0: yeah parts see i'm at that point now so i sing in the choir at coventry cathedral and um i'm at the point now where i'm starting to realize that actually if i could read at the same level that everybody else could read then i'd be okay but because i can't i'm now being held back
2: oh yeah and that's such a shame because that's um, not actually the music braille's <laughs> fault
0: no not that's at the all the fault
2: of like you know we don't actually bother to go learn until we kind of are, are you know reach a, a plateau yeah. um uh, and if if you know our teachers like no one lets well my teacher wasn't letting her sighted uh, students get, get out of you know learning to read sheet music they had to do all their <laughs> theory exercises mm. or whatever from the beginning from the very beginning right
1: and also the the thing that you were saying before, Ashley, and what you're saying, Matthew, about the availability of music. Like sometimes you'd be in a choir or you'd be somewhere and you, they wouldn't have that music for you. But yet the, the, the teacher could sing it into a recording device for you or something. And so it's yes. like, well, I'm not going to wait six months for this. I'm just going to learn it by year because it's the fastest way I could get it um so if there is music available or if there's a way of getting it on your braille devices or you know ways of getting at that music fast then more people will probably use it too i don't know Mm
2: -hmm. and that brings us back to digitization because i know that one of the efforts that the uh, national library service in the u.s is making is to put those digitized copies um uh, online where they're available to the, the folks who have access to the to the nls so they can mm. download them and so if you can imagine that you know you're about to start a new piece at choir rehearsal tonight's the first rehearsal and on the way there you download you download
1: it yeah you download it and you look, does, put your
2: part on the braille display
1: <laughs> does that mean we get it like at other libraries like hopefully with um the marrakesh that that means that we at Cela like Cela would get it or rnib would get it or someone would get it that we would they wouldn't just Yeah, like I would imagine it. so.
2: I'm like the furthest thing from the Marrakesh <laughs>
1: Treaty. Uh, <Yeah>. I, I <laughs> know, but but yeah, but I would imagine that that's means that's how it should
2: work. Everyone should can to share it. more easily all of these scores because you know different libraries have access to, and there's so much. Like if you put all of the music together, um, and because music is like that that international code within Braille, um, it's just you know it it's amazing when you think about kind of how much we have
1: access to when you look we'll at every every score that's yeah. sitting on shelves across the world and think about technology like i'm really geeky about braille technology too but imagine like multi-line like as the multi-line braille displays become more um prevalent uh, prevalent prevalent is that the word I'm i think mm-hmm. so <laughs> uh, then th- then reading that braille music will be easier like like You know, as things happen like that with the technology and the Braille, not just the scores, but the ability to read more than one line will help with Braille music, I think, too. For sure. Mm. You know
0: the big problem with the multi-line ones at the moment is that they're not very portable. <laughs> the
1: canute. Yeah. yeah like, like it's the, a fantastic the, the machine. Oh, I but, love it. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> Can you plug it to the cathedral yeah.
1: and carry the canute in there? <laughs> rather but... take your hard copy score at this point
2: or right. your
3: part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: What's really
0: exciting me as well is that the translation aspect of this. So actually at the moment scores are SATB or what have you. And you know, you have to have SATB or whatever is available. Whereas, if you had, um, if you if you were able to convert it from music XML into Braille yourself, then you could choose which parts you had, and that I think will open up a lot of potential oh, as well. Yes. You
1: could just take your own part. Yeah, that would sure. Be- that would be better cool. and that would be And less you can add Braille. notes, so like, you can add,
2: um, like, you know, if your conductor fussy about something, oh, which mine usually were, um, yes. if you have it on a Braille display, but you, that also has input, um, or even, you know, afterwards, yeah. if you can get, get the, you edit the Braille file again, on. you can do all kinds of fancy things.
1: That's right, I used to always feel jealous when, like, my co-musicians were taking their pencil and writing something beside something and something, you know, because not only can we not see the conductor, we also don't have access to the, the score and the notes or whatever we want to use. makes.
2: Yeah, it's a strain on working memory. And so all of yeah, this would, would help to mitigate
1: some of that.
3: Hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. We're in, in a great time for Braille. I think like this is a very exciting time to be around Braille. Yeah.
0: Did you, uh, did either of you listen to the discussion that happened yesterday about formatting Braille and the the impact of that? You know, I'm interested in the impact of that on refreshable Braille and refreshable music Braille.
2: (laughs) So I will admit live that I was not here yesterday. So Kim, hopefully you can.
1: (laughs) Well, I I listened Mm -hmm. on the podcast and I'm still sort of trying to digest it. You know, I'm still trying. I think it's really important that we have specialized formatting for Um, for braille displays like the ebrf you know and and just uh, understanding that it's different it's not just the same old um the same old formatting for a hard copy versus a braille display or so I'm still sort of trying to absorb it I I did listen but I I I don't I don't know how much I want to comment yet I'm still sort of letting it sink into me. I don't know, Matthew, if you have ideas. Well,
0: I'm just thinking about things like, if you look at piano music, it's written bar over bar. And bar over bar works very well in hard copy. But if you're reading on a Braille display, do you actually want it written bar over bar? And if you do want it written bar Mm -hmm. over bar, how long do you want each line of, of bars to be? Because it might not match, you know, the number of bars... You know, did you see what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think also the searching, like the and the navigational stuff, which was for print, but, you know, like that you can navigate like a daisy book, like you can go by headings or whatever, those kind of things with the new kind of BRF sure. or new formatting. Well,
0: well on, on that note, too. I'm going to cut you short because everybody started to come into Zoom. We now have 47 people coming into Zoom. It's eight minutes past nine and I'm going to fade up Jen, who is going to start the proceedings for today.
4: Well, welcome, everybody, to day two of the ICEB um, midterm executive meeting. I, um, I hadn't thought about this until just now. I, I won't go through the entire Zoom pro- protocol, but just a quick reminder um, that uh, if you could Please remain on mute until we have um, times of discussion or when uh, Madam President Judy Dixon opens things up for discussion, just so we don't have a lot of background noise. And uh, I guess we'll leave it at that for now. Um, And we will, when there's time for discussion, we'll just um, have people raise their hands and our fantastic moderators, Anthony Tibbs and Daphne Hitchcock, will will be monitoring the raised hands. So we'll facilitate the discussion that way. So again, welcome to day two of the midterm meetings. We've got lots of fun things going on today, but again, just um, to make you feel like you're virtually in Canada, we're going to have a little CanCon moment now to start things off. And so what I, I s- decided to do is because we, you know, we were having this great discussion about reading towards the end of the day yesterday. So I thought I do a little bit of CanLit. Everything is Canvas and, you know, can that. So can lit. um, This is not a list of books that you'd necessarily be given to read in high school or university classes, but it's just a sampling of, I don't know, things I thought you all needed to know about. Some of them more or less well known. So I would like to start with a book that was just published last year by Groundwood Books. It is very cool it's called this is how i know a book about the seasons written by Brittany luby translated by alvin ted corbiere and and alan corbiere and what this book is is um it's a book for for kids and it's um it was transcribed by our very own bonnie reed for one of our national uh, the national network of equitable library services um as well and bonnie did the braille and there's all kinds of tactile graphics as well and it's um the book is in english it's a print braille book it's in english and Anishinaabemowin, Anishinaabemowin, sorry and it's about an anishinaabe girl and her grandmother and it just goes through the different seasons and she says you know this is how i know it's summer and there are several pictures um, that are summer related there's one where they're in a canoe on a lake and and it goes through all four seasons and so it's it's very cool and i wanted to highlight that um another um very different genre from children's books if you're into murder mysteries, there's a couple of Canadian women authors that I wanted to highlight. One is um, uh, Gail Bowen and she's written a number of books, including the Joanne Kilborn mystery series. And she's um, this, they're based in, it's based in Regina, Saskatchewan. And so it's just kind of cool because it's, it's again, you know, very, um, you know, you get a sense of different things that are are pertinent to maybe that part of the country, but um. So they're, you know, they might keep you up at night, but, you know, murder mysteries. There you go. And also Louise Penny, who I think has is more well-known kind of internationally. But she, although she writes, she's Anglophone and she writes in English, but her um, Armand Gamache, Inspector Gamache series, it takes place in the eastern townships in Quebec. And um, there's a whole series there. So it really does give you a flavor of English-French relations and different different things that are unique to that part of the country and i will say about these books there's a um there's a there's a b and b in the village where you know all these murders happen and the descriptions of food are just mouthwatering. it's it's just it, i i want to go and stay there and just eat it really does come always back to food for me i'm starting to realize that okay uh the next <laughs> author that i wanted to highlight is a canadian author a children's author named Jean Little. And I mentioned her uh, partly because I loved her books when I was a kid, but she was a blind author. And I actually didn't know when I was a kid reading her books. I didn't know that she was blind until I read, she'd written a book about um, about her guide dog or her, it was semi-autobiographical, that's the right word. So she's written a number of books uh, from Anna. She, there's a bunch of Uh, dear Canada books that cover different periods in our history and a book called look through my window which is one of my uh, favorites of hers and she she um, lived to be something like 82 83 she she actually died early in uh, 2020 Um, and fourth uh, L.M. Montgomery Anne of Green Gables I could not list a bunch of Canadian books without mentioning and because I love her, and if you uh, want to learn about life in PEI in the early days of um, of Canada as a country, these are good books to read. But Ellen Montgomery, actually, apart from the Anne series, she wrote a bunch of other books, and one of my favorites is uh, "There's a Blue Castle," which is uh, actually takes place in Ontario, and a book called "Jane of Lantern Hill," which takes place in Ontario and PEI. And I really like this book because Jane really sort of comes into her own in this book and she really learns to stand up for herself. She really comes out of her shell and and it's just a fun book. And finally, for those of you who might be into poetry, um, we don't want to forget uh, Robert's W. Robert W. Service and the, the Spell of the Yukon. And so this is a little book of poetry uh, that's lots of fun. It has poems such as The Rhyme of the Remittance Man and the Shooting of Dan McGrew. And my personal favorite, this is one of the most fun poems ever, The Cremation of Sam McGee. So uh, if you're ever looking for some 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 fun poetry, that's uh there's an example for you, and it's a a tiny sort of a volume, one volume book. So that is my my list of Canadian literature. Again, someone else might have picked a very different list, but that's what I decided that you all needed to know about. Okay, so with that, I am going to uh, hand things over to ICEB President Judy Dixon.
5: Thank you, Jen. That was terrific. I actually know most of those, so that was that's really excellent. Nice. Thank you. Uh, we have one small piece of business to take care of left over from yesterday, and that is approval of the minutes of the May 9th meeting. So can I hear a motion, please, to approve those minutes as distributed?
6: Chair, with corrections.
5: Yes, yes with corrections. Yes.
7: This is this is Francis <laughs> Mary. There were just two small corrections which I have already made. And the uh, corrections
5: have been made.
7: Yes, thank you. Yes, James um, specified the name of the project that uh, Jordy was referring to with the files, and uh, Mary pointed out the that I left the R out of countries and I turned them into counties. So, <laughs>
3: <laughs>
5: spell checker never tells you that.
4: <laughs> I will
5: move.
8: I'll thank,
5: second. Thank, second. Thank you, Jen and James. Seconds. So. Just to remind everyone, only the executive committee is voting, so all in favor?
8: Aye.
9: Aye. Aye.
5: And opposed? Fine. Thank you very much. So that takes care of our leftover piece of business. Today, uh, the meeting is in two parts. The first half of the meeting from from twenty hundred to twenty one thirty. We'll be talking about public relations and public relations related things. And then the second half of the meeting from 2130 to 2300, we will hear from our music committee and a couple of invited speakers who will be talking to us today about music related items. So should be a pretty interesting day. So I'm going to hand it over to Maria. Maria who will give the report of the Public public Relations Committee. Maria?
10: Right. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. Um, good morning, everyone. And I've just got to check if my video is on. Yes, it is. Okay. <clears throat> good morning, everyone. Good evening. Good afternoon. And welcome to day two of ICEB meeting. As a a follow on from yesterday, I have hard copy as well as um, electronic copies of this report as a just in case and as a comfort blanket, really. I I like hard copy and I found yesterday really interesting. All right, um, so this report covers the period um, since the 7th General Assembly of ICEB in October 2020. The Public Relations Committee was established following the 2016 ICEB General Assembly. It is responsible for telling the world about the policies, decisions, and activities of ICEB. Following an amendment to the ICEB executive- Richard West, joined the meeting. Hello, Richard. Um, Constitution in 2020, the committee is now a permanent committee which reflects the important and ongoing nature of its work. The Public Relations Committee is led by the Public Relations Officer. Members for the 2020 to 2024 term are Maria Stevens, the Chair, Jen Golden, Canada, Natalie, Natalie Martiniello, Canada, and Mary Schneckenberg, New Zealand. Without these three ladies, wouldn't be here reading this report today. So I really wish to acknowledge all of the hard work that these three ladies do to make this committee work the way it does. Um, ICB continues to, be a Facebook, to have a Facebook page and Twitter account. Um, Natalie and um, Jen operate those because I'm not very good with that technology. And it promotes events in Braille. In her report to the 2020 General Assembly, Leona Holloway, then the Public Relations Officer, told us that the ICEB Twitter account, um, icebrow was established in May 2016, at the commencement of the ICEB General Assembly. Uh, at that time, there were 407 Twitter followers, um, up from 250 in August 2020. ICEB established a Facebook page in February 2017. The ICEB Facebook page is is um, I've just done what someone else has done has lost my page. Um, is located at, and there's an address, web address there. There are 604 Facebook followers up from 400 in August 2020, and the ladies will update these numbers later. ICEB Announce is a one-way list serve <coughs> um, on groups I.O. reserved for important announcements about IECEB activities, such as updates to Unified English Braille and upcoming ICEB meetings. It is also, it is also used for distribution of the ICEB newsletter. The first ICEB newsletter was produced in December 2018. Since then, it has been produced and distributed quarterly in March, June, September, December, with the exception of June 2021. The newsletter is stored on the ICEB website. Each edition includes a mix of ICEB news, UEB, FAQs, and test your knowledge, news from the broader brow community, and upcoming events. We thank all our contributors and everyone who helps with ideas, pre reading, and production, and a particular acknowledgement to Mary and Leona. There are 246 email addresses subscribed to ICEB announce, up from 150 subscribers in August 2020. If you haven't received a newsletter from the list, please subscribe by sending an email to, and we've got an email address here. The ICE website, address again, serves as a public door to the work done by ICEB and and as a repository for information and materials we warmly thank Judy Dixon for taking care of the website updates. The work of ICEB is of importance to all countries using or teaching English in Braille. The Public Relations Committee has been pleased to share news of developments in the roles of UEB as well as advances in the teaching and technology of Braille. Much work remains to be done particularly in terms of outreach to non-member countries and collaboration with other organisations. Um, we look forward to hearing news from world, from the World Blind Union on the World Braille Council. So more information about the work of the Public Relations Committee, including past issues of the ICB newsletter, can be found on our Braille Promotions page. Uh, that That's the end of my report, but before I open the floor, can I ask um, Natalie, if she wants to update or share any information, and then Jen and then Mary, if that's okay. Over to you, if you have anything, Natalie. Yes,
11: thank you, Maria. So currently, um, you can search for ICB on Facebook, as we mentioned. And currently, we do have 621 Facebook followers. So that's up uh, from 400, I believe, in August. 2020. Um, so as I as mentioned, it's just a great way to stay up to date about ICEB work, but also updates relevant to Braille from different member countries. So definitely follow us for, for that, that information.
4: I will turn it over to you, Jen, if you have anything to add about Twitter. I do, thank you, Natalie. So our Twitter, um, it's, I-C-E-B Braille, so it's I-C-E-B all in caps, and then Braille all lowercase, but all one word, so it's at I-C-E-B Braille. I always have to think about it, because when I read it, it looks like ice Braille. Um, (laughs) And we now have, as of today, 417 followers on Twitter, and I actually, I apologize, I didn't check what it was in 2020, but um, it was even up sort of from the numbers I gave Maria for this, uh, for the report.
11: And we are updating throughout the week, throughout this whole. Oh yeah. Good. Thank you.
4: Natalie's live tweeting. And we, um, I did some yesterday and now she's taken over, which is great. And, uh, Mary, I will hand it over to you. The only other thing I would say, well, actually you're probably going to say this, Mary. So, um, I'll hand it over to you.
12: Thank you, Jen. Um, last night, I checked the um, ICB, ICEB announcements list. And uh, around about 9 o'clock last night, we were that's in New Zealand, sorry. It's um, after 8 a.m. this morning in New Zealand right now. So 11 hours ago, it was 265. However, um, I am one of the people that gets notifications <coughs> of every new enrolment and i've had one notification overnight so 266 for the icb announcement subscribers now um, i really do encourage if any of you are on um, today's meeting and you haven't subscribed to the announcements list it's probably the most um, innocuous email list in the world, in the sense that it's a one way list. So there's only about four or five of us who can post to it. And it is truly an announcements list, it's not a discussion list. Um, and if one of us, if I make a foolish error, and uh, I very quickly am told so by my colleagues, which is terrific. So ICEB announce. Plus, subscribe at GoogleGroups.io. No.
5: Marriott's um, it, groups. It's groups.io.
12: Oh, sorry. Uh, yes, at sorry groups. at at uh, at groups.io. How did I say that? Um, <laughs> no so, Google. No, there's no Google. Um, I C E B hyphen announce plus subscribe at groups.io my apologies it's clearly too early in the morning um so thank you very much um everyone The, the newsletter is um is always a challenge to put together um because it's really important to to make it as accessible as possible and i really honor and thank all the people who contribute to the newsletter we have a um a column from our president now each month to each issue rather to set the tone and and um, just gently chivvy us along um, which is great and 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 then of course is Kathy (laughs) excuse me Um, Kathy Reason, who who puts in all those really complicated questions and answers and I think oh just as well just as well no one tests my knowledge Um, and and they're really helpful, helpful to just expand all of us. The neat thing that Cathy has been able to do um, with some help from Clive and, and others is that Kathy has sorted out um, the best way to present the Braille for um, the newsletter. And so we're using Unicode because um, uh, that way the Braille um, is very readable in, um, uh, on our Braille displays, which is terrific. And, uh, we have, and so Kathy has introduced extra options to support sighted people who um, prefer the um, SIM Braille in a traditional visual way, um, plus, um, plus Unicode, um, so that um, the, the Braille will display properly on our uh, Braille displays. Um, and then there's Leona i don't know how it is that leona always leona holloway from melbourne um, who's now at Monash university teaching about tactile graphics i don't know how it is that leona finds time to support us but she does and i have learned a whole bunch of things that i never knew about microsoft word as i come to put together the um, uh, the newsletter so very special thanks to leona who always seems to manage to find a photo for every occasion. Um, And those photos are really important. I often think about the situation for young blind people going into the office, um, starting work. And I think, how would I survive in today's office life when everything has to be illustrated with a graphic of some kind or other and mostly inaccessible as well? so thank you so much for teaching about that, Leona, and um, and and for helping the newsletter to be visually attractive as well as interesting through audio and braille. Um, that, that that's me. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Mary. Uh, these guys are all doing a terrific amount of work and doing a great job. This this is an area where those of you who are observers who care about braille and presumably care about ICEB because you're here. So this is an area where, where you can help. And we're gonna have an open discussion in a little while to talk about how people can get more involved, how they can help. If anybody is a website manager and knows how to manage a very, very simple website that's just in HTML, and would like to help out with that, I am um, would be happy to have some help with our website. So that's a possibility for someone. And Mary can always use contributions to the newsletter, and we can use recruitment for our announce list and so forth. Mary and I have a goal of getting the announce list up to a thousand members, and
9: uh, we're 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 slowly getting there. It's climbing along,
5: so we're hoping uh, to do
9: that. It's Kathy Reeson here. Yes, Kathy. I was, I was just double checking the uh, announce list, and we're actually currently got oh, it's another one come in. We <laughs> actually got three hundred and two members. Oh my! Yes, so this is terrific. There's been a few come in this morning, which which could be people, you know, sort of. And I have noticed every time we promote it somewhere, we get new people coming in. You know, sort of we quite heavily promoted it when we had our roundtable conference in Australia recently, and there were quite a few new new subscribers following that. So can I encourage that whenever you're with people, you know talking about Braille and whatever, just encourage them to join the announce list.
5: Thank you. Yes, that's terrific.. Um, before we go into our open discussion about the promotion of Braille and promotion of ICEB, we're going to have a discussion of the independent efforts to create new Braille codes and tables. And Jen Golden is going to lead this discussion. Jen?
4: Thank you, Judy. I was just making sure I was on mute and turning on my video. For, for now? All right. So I'm just gonna give a bit of uh background on this before we get into any kind of discussion and, and um we'll we'll kind of go from there. So um where this is coming from is that we've started, I wanna say in the last almost year now, several months for sure, ICEB has been getting, as have I think some other Braille authorities too, but for the purposes of ICEB, we've been getting either inquiries from people or we've had people notify us of articles they've seen, you know, in the newspaper about some, you know, someone who maybe we've never heard of who isn't really connected in the Braille world. Oh, this person's developing a new code for such and such a language in, let's say, the the South Pacific or an Indigenous language in, um, in Canada or the United States. And as we had conversations about this at the ICEB executive meetings, we there's sort of a tension here, right? Because these aren't codes for English, obviously by the nature of you know, what it is, it's it's a language other than English that that either doesn't have a braille code or the person doesn't think there is one or doesn't know if there is one. And so there's a level in which this is outside of our scope as the International Council on English Braille. Now, that being said, because this keeps coming up, and there isn't really an umbrella for this kind of thing at this point, we had a lot of discussions. Um, I also had some discussions with Dr. Robert Engelbretson because of of course his his uh his areas of expertise and you know we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do, and out of this came a couple of things and one is you know we when when it's appropriate, we do kind of reach out to these people who are developing these codes to kind of try to give them some guidance or just let them know that there's things that they need to consider. And, and I mean, really they're under no obligation to listen to us, although we we hope they'll take our, um, our, our advice. Sometimes they do sometimes more often than not, they, they just kind of do their own thing. And so the one thing that we did decide to do is um, and I'm, I am working on this and, the, my plan is to have this sort of ready for the executive to review it before the end of the summer um, is just kind of a very general sort of I did not want to call it a white paper but just a very general document that that gives sort of here's the guidance you know if, if you're somebody that's going to try to develop a code before you get too far along in your process and get kind of too excited about it here are the things that you need to consider and I'm going to talk about what those things are but I'm just going to sort of stick to our the process stuff right now so the plan is that I'm going to put this this document together and Robert has agreed to help me with this and then work on it with me and then the um, it will go to the ICEB executive for review we will eventually put it like uh, once it's once we're happy with it we will put it on our website so that just so that it's a resource that people can find because this is the again this is one of the issues is that for people who do try to figure out some sort of um, to to get information online there really isn't anything out there and so we hope that this at least will give people some guidance g- give them something to, to kind of um, to take a look at and maybe reconsider what they're doing all that kind of thing. So before we start kind of getting again into a discussion about this, I just wanted thought I would highlight sort of the things that we do tell people when we you know when when we are able to have dialogue with them. So there are different components to this, right? So if someone wants to develop a code for another, you know, for whatever the language is, there's first of all, there's okay, maybe a code already exists and you just don't know about it. So you need to make sure that there really isn't a code that's being accepted by that community. So that's that's where people need to start. And speaking of the community, as wonderful as it is if someone really has a heart to, you know, I really want I really want these people to have a braille code. That's great. We we want them to have a braille code too. But the initiatives, the codes that are most successful are the ones that start within the community when a speaker of the language initiates the process and says you know what this is this is something that we really need so community involvement is is key and that really needs to be there from the beginning so that's an essential component and then the aspect so let's say that you have that let's say that someone you know within the community a language speaker they're really keen to do this and and then what what they really need, what's sort of needed to make sure that the process you know works well and that the the ulti- the resulting code is uh, efficient, is is you know, is valid, is going to be accepted, you know within the community, is actually going to help Braille readers who speak whatever the language is in question. You do need the perspective of Braille readers and also people who, people who understand how the code works. And, and by that, I don't just mean knowing the symbols. What I mean is the kinds of things you need to consider when you are developing a code, right? So you want to think about things like, okay, um, something that's used frequently, you want to have that be, let's say if you're developing symbols, right? If something is used very frequently, you want that to be a one or two symbol thing, Um one or two cell, excuse me, one or two cell symbol, if at all possible, right? You can have, you know, that's not a hard and fast rule, but you want to think about the frequency of how, you know, how often something's used. You want to think about things like if you're looking at accented characters, there's, I'm not going to say there's a standard, but there's certain things, certain symbols that tend to be used, let's say for, to represent the E acute or the the e-grav or the i-grav that if you're somebody who speaks more than one language and reads more than one language, I know I've found this that in other languages that I read, there's a lot of overlap in, you know, the accented character symbols, which makes it a lot easier when you're learning another language. I just started studying Greek last year and I was like, oh, good. These accents are all fairly familiar to me because the, the people that developed the Greek, um, you know, the Greek code, took this into account and, and they actually did this. And so it makes it much easier for braille readers, especially if they, they've already, they already know other languages. So there are, and there are other things. That's just a sample. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, this won't be exhaustive. But you need someone who has that perspective. You, as I've already said, you need someone who can speak the language that you're working on. Um, and you need also somebody who, under, who knows whatever the print, system is that's used and this is really important because some languages have more than one orthography and you need to know which one you know do you need a braille code for you know x orthography or y orthography or both sometimes there are political considerations uh, that that are involved in determining which one you're going to represent because there has to be a correlation the the braille let's say alphabet slash code that you develop has to correlate with a specific print orthography, or, you know, you develop more codes, if there are more than one, it has to represent or correlate to an existing print orthography that is accepted in the community. So you do need somebody who not only knows the print System being used, but somebody who understands the political and cultural ramifications of, you know, choosing one orthography over another, or how that all plays into it. So there's there's a lot of detail that that you really need, and having somebody with a linguistics background who understands, you know just how some of this stuff works and how the mechanics of language work and how it interacts with 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 writing systems. So it's a little more I, I'm not trying to say that, oh, it's so complicated and nobody can do it, but very specific people. But really it's more complicated than people tend to assume. So this idea that you can sit down and and just sort of come up with a braille code in you know 20 minutes, half an hour is really going to do a disservice to the people that you're trying to help. And so this is kind of the context of where we are at and why we wanted to at least get something out there. The, the final component that I would mention too is that, let's say you've done all of this, all these things I've talked about, you've had all the right, you know, you've had all these players involved and you do put together a code. It really does need to be approved slash accepted, adopted by by the community. So in in situations where this has worked, the the people who developed the code and works within these parameters that I've talked about, they have gotten buy-in from, you know, in the case of indigenous communities, right? The, the band council or the elders, whatever the structure happens to be, they've gotten buy-in from, um, from them so that this code can be sort of officially adopted. And then, you know, letting the Braille authority of your country, know so that they can, you know, the Braille Authority isn't necessarily probably isn't qualified to adopt the code in the sense of, you know, knowing the language and knowing, you know, all these sorts of things about it. But they can kind of they can kind of say, yes, we we know this code exists and we know that, you know, appropriate steps were followed so that we can be reasonably confident that this code has buy-in from the community and that it can be successfully implemented. So that's kind of a big picture in terms of um updates that i have you know like i said we've had a few of these requests we have a situation in nova scotia here in in canada where um the Mi'kmaq language is um one of the uh, very prevalent indigenous language that is spoken and so i was contacted uh, several months ago as was uh, dr robert engelbretson by a transcriber in nova scotia who really who had a student who is a speaker of McMah, and she she really wanted to develop a code and so between between robert and 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 i we we had these conversations with her um mostly via email kind of presenting all the things that i've just talked about and she was you know very receptive very keen like to to do this and i contacted one of my um one of my professors who works in this field, not not the Braille component, but um, writing systems and Indigenous languages in Canada and and, um, language revitalization and all these kinds of things. And so I contacted her and she was able to give me the contact of a guy who developed the print orthography that's used by the speakers of this language, speakers of Mi'kmaq. So eventually the woman who contacted me, um, she was able to meet with him and have had eventually was able not, I shouldn't say eventually, it just, it took some time to work through everything, but um, he, he is really on board with what she's doing and is able to bring the, um, because he is also, he's a speaker. He's just somebody who came along and developed an orthography, right? He he did this as well for print. He's, he's kind of taking the same approach that we're recommending and because he's he's from that community so it's now at the point where um it's it's nearly at the point where it's ready to be approved by um the the elders of the community so it's really kind of exciting to see someone who took what we said to heart and actually went about it that that way um and is very interested in in following procedures that will make sure that the code benefits people and actually does what you know, what what it's supposed to do to to help Braille readers who speak the language for which the codes developed. So hopefully that gives everybody kind of an idea of where we're coming from. I don't I guess I'll start with the executive in terms of discussion and then, Judy, I'll let you decide um, how you want to open the discussion up. Does anyone have any comments or questions?
6: Hi, Jen, it's James here. Hi, James. Could I I add one thing to your list? Sure. That the Proposed code actually contains everything that's needed, so it's not just the alphabetic characters or and or accented characters, but there's a whole bunch possibly of punctuation symbols, maybe capital variants, numbers, and that's before we get onto any kind of Braille-specific things you might like, like italic signs if there is such a thing, uh, the idea of contractions if that's to be adopted or anything. So there's a whole bunch of things apart from just the basic orthography.
4: That's a really good point. Thank you, James. And I it will make you feel better to know that I actually, because you had brought this to my attention earlier, it's in my notes for the document. I just didn't say it. So thank you for uh, thank you for raising that.
13: Jen, Kristel, uh, yeah.
4: Yes, you yeah. would know a lot about developing other codes.
13: this is a very interesting topic to us. Um, As you know by now, we have 10 local languages. All of them had codes and grade two codes before UEB came. And then after UEB, we unified all of them, which means that their grade one systems are identical. And each of the languages then um, has its own contraction system. Well, I say each of them. Uh, some are grouped together. For example, the Nguni languages, Isikosa and Isizulu, um, use the same code. And then the three Sutu languages use the same uh, their same code. And the other codes are uh, different for each of the languages. Um, the African languages are, are constructed that they consist to a large extent of syllables consisting of a a consonant and a vowel, and those are contractions. So they tend to be very efficient. Uh, We looked at some stats. Um, The UEB contracts approximately between 19 and 21%. It has 180 odd contractions. If you look now at the the code for the SUTU languages, it has only 72 contractions, but it contracts about 27%. It's very, very efficient. Mm -hmm. So um, we've been having a lot of fun with that. Uh, We are currently revising the code for Afrikaans. The codes for Chivenda and Tsonga Uh, Chutonga um, were revised about 10 years ago, so they are fairly new. We are now doing a a big revision of the Afrikaans code, and in the process, we looked at the efficiency of code, and and UEB is not that efficient. You can write quite a long sentence in English, which will not contain a single uh, contraction. That's almost impossible in any of our codes. And then we've also steered clear completely of the short form madness that exists in UEB.
4: That sounds like that might be another conversation that you and I should have at some point. Thank you for that, Christo. That's, it's really interesting to know, especially in a country where you guys have had to kind of work through you know, that kind of consolidation. Does anyone else have I I looked at the agenda too and realized that we have 15 minutes for this discussion, and I didn't pay attention to when I started so it's fine you're okay we're good okay any anyone else. um... Uh, This is Francis Mary.
5: Go ahead.
7: Okay. Um, And and I just wanted to say thank you for first of all for this discussion and also for um, drafting this document, because I think. Um, As we've discussed in our our executive committee meetings, there seems to be a, um, I I don't know, a perception that all you need is a computer and you can just chunk out some code (laughs) without actually uh, talking to anyone about whether it's useful or not, or, and as you said, it's a, um, while somebody's heart might be in the right place, um, this kind of proliferation of, of codes that some one person might have just designed without actually um, talking to people in the communities. Um, can certainly cause some problems um, along the way. I'm just um, wondering too, um, <clears throat> whether you will, th- this document will also kind of a- address or how it will address uh, rural usage. And if there are, um, I don't know, considerations that, um, um you know, the the organization that is keeping up world braille usage is also kind of keeping track of some of these efforts in um in these other languages.
4: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I forgot to mention that I'm there's a resources section. And I will say too, I know I just said like I'll have this by the end of the summer. I actually think I can have it done a lot sooner. It's it's well on its way. I just didn't want to officially promise. At this point, once ICEB is over, I'll figure that out. But um, one of the things in the resource section is definitely world braille usage. And I I think that would be a good conversation to have to figure out, you know, I can even looking at, I mean, it was 2013, right? I, you know, it doesn't have the Navajo code in it because that was after. And I'm sure there are other codes. And now this Mi'kmaq one, eventually, if, you know, if it gets approved and sort that, that happens in the next few months, that will be, you know, that's just two off the top of my head that I can think of. And I'm sure there are probably others. So it would be good to figure out, you know, what do we do about world Braille usage going forward? Because if we're going to tell people to use it as a resource, and it it continues to be 2013 for many years to come, it's, it it is going to mislead people into thinking a code maybe doesn't exist when it actually does.
6: Yes, there have been several examples of that in the Liblui. I know uh, yes, Vietnamese was sure. updated, I think, was one off the top of my head.
4: Well, and that, and you're right too, James. That's I was thinking about languages that didn't have Braille codes in 2013 and now they do or that we just didn't know about in 2013. But you're right, there's also the fact that, you know, as as much as world Braille usage isn't exhaustive in the sense of having every single symbol from a code, you're right, too, that, you know, when a language is updated, it could be that there's things in World Braille usage that are no longer accurate. And again, if we're referring people to it, that's going to be problematic.
5: I don't know how much World Braille usage is being updated in real time.
4: I don't think it is at all. But I, I shouldn't. I don't want I to say that know. definitively. But. I know
5: Perkins did create an email address at my request uh, um, in the last year or so, where people can send information about new things. But I don't know what's being done with that information. Kim would. Kim would probably know, but Kim is yeah. un- unfortunately not here.
4: Yeah, I, I can definitely. She was someone I was going to follow up with in yeah. doing this document, just to see because even that right that email address how how um, there's, you know, to your point, whether anything's being done with it, but how many people know about it and can write right. to it and say, oh, hey, just so you know, you know, the language I speak has this code and it's but not it is, here. It is know.
5: World Rail Usage at
4: Perkins.org. Okay, good to you know.
12: Um, Jean, it's Mary from New Zealand. Hey, Mary. Um, I absolutely understand and totally support that the community of the language users has to lead the drive. I don't know if there's a safe way for you to politically introduce um, something that's affecting me personally. In New Zealand we have three official languages, um, English, New Zealand Sign Language, and Te Reo Maori, and that's the language of our indigenous people, Maori, who were here, came to New Zealand several centuries before um, colonial English people arrived. Um, te Reo Maori is becoming more and more and more um, spoken, used uh, mm. in everyday New Zealand language so for example um, the world of work um, is the world of mahi m-a-h-i um, and the word mahi can turn up in the middle of an everyday radio new zealand news bulletin um, along with all the other english that might be in the rest of the sentence so there is um, increasing not just recognition but increasing respect for um, our indigenous language te reo maori Um, i have needed to braille and proofread a whole lot of te reo it seems to me a lot over the years and a lot a good deal of care needs to be taken to make sure you you set the code so that it will transcribe translate correctly um, and that's fine, but it is tricky to proofread when you're not a speaker of te reo yes. And it's even more tricky in the sense that um, Māori words are by and large longer than English words. So they would lend themselves to the correct, appropriate uh, coding mm-hmm for a contracted code don't ask me what that should look like but it won't because i don't have any knowledge i'm not a speaker of te reo Māori. yeah no understood so um i am i'm hoping to be able to lean on the community of um, te reo maori speakers particularly blind people who read the code the th- the challenge for us is that te reo maori is very much a spoken language it only became a written language when the missionaries turned up and um, and produced uh, the first key um, dictionary of of maori words uh, was produced by one of the english missionaries reverend williams and so the the importance of of getting the code right and getting the leadership right, and actually getting it introduced, is not just an importance for the Indigenous speakers, and I don't know how you can convey that in your book, or without causing distress or hurt for anyone. Um, But for me, um, it's going to take a while to develop the to even agree to develop a code, a while for it to be introduced. And maybe by the time it is introduced, I I may not be transcribing and I may not actually master the reading of it, but it's very important, not just for um, the actual community of speakers, uh, um, indigenous speakers of the language. It can be very important for others around them.
4: Thank you, Mary. That's a good point. And I'm, I'm glad that, because this is going to be in the next few weeks or so that you guys will be seeing this, I'm, I, I will definitely welcome your input on that, you know, again, at that time when we're reviewing the document.
14: Jen, another little
6: point that's just occurred to me. Sure. Is, does the code go both ways from print to Braille and Braille to print?
4: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, something. I, what I'm, what I'm gonna, what I'm planning to do, James, is sort of have like a. Um, look at that braille display battery low. One, chalk one up for hard copy. Okay. Um, one of the things that I'm gonna have is like a, a things to consider section, and that would be something that people need, or, you know, that I'm gonna suggest that, or that ultimately we are gonna suggest because this will be, you know, a document that we all have buy-in on but you know that people need to consider that as well so
15: sure thank you jen yes one mm-hmm. of the one of the things crystal touched on when he was uh, trying to uh, portray the complexities in the uh, different languages for which we developed the codes in south africa it's uh, chivenda and and, Shizong, and these two languages have got uh, critics <clears throat> and diacritics are quite effective uh, and important uh, in some languages. Uh, and they affect the the character and the manner in which that particular character or word would be pronounced. So I think it's something which you need to uh, ensure that you 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 get to understand when you are busy developing these codes so that you you do not, negatively end up affecting the manner in which the language flows when when spoken through reading.
4: Yeah, these are all really good points and I'm going to be <laughs> happy that you guys are all reviewing what I do for I you mean, know, I'm going to make notes but anything that that I don't include. The one thing I want to make sure is that we find the balance between providing some general principles, recommendation, guidance, etc. without getting too 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 detailed mainly because you know, we can't, there's so many languages, so many different kinds of languages, so many different, you know, so many different issues that would come up in very specific situations that I think that's one thing as an exec when we're reviewing this document that we're going to have to figure out what we think is sort of the optimal amount of detail to include in this document. Jen, it's Natalie. Yes, Natalie.
11: Um, Yeah, I fully agree, and um, I think that would be, and I'm sure you'll do this anyway, but a a point to really emphasize at the beginning of the document that this is not an exhaustive list of things to consider, that these are kind of, you know, just some some important considerations and and that every language is different, and therefore the needs will be different depending on the language and the culture. and I know you mentioned the resource section, and I'm sure I'm sure you thought of this, um, but um, just <clears throat> reference to including links to the, the different Braille authorities because that's that's yes. is a, a really good way to begin to connect with people who speak those languages, um,
4: just to get to the community. Which I'm yeah, sure because that's ultimate. Awesome. Yeah, that's what we want. I don't know if I have that there yet, but yeah, no that. That's a that's a really good that's a really good suggestion because you know we're telling them ultimately that they're gonna have to connect with their country's braille authority. So um, definitely something to make sure is included.
12: Yes, I, I just am really interested in that because I'm not sure there's anywhere anyone has produced an accurate current up-to-date list of all the braille authorities in all the countries of the world.
7: Yeah, um, I was just about to say that. And I think something yeah. changed. Sorry.
12: I'd, yeah, that's right. And actually, um, and I, this is a gentle, gentle reminder to each Braille authority listening from time to time, I've had to contact the Braille authorities and I've had addresses bounce and do all sorts of things. So as a to do from today's meeting, could each Braille authority please check that the information that's on the ICEB website about who you are and how to get hold of you is current, please. Um, It's so easy for things to change and people forget to fix whatever it is they're supposed to fix because we never quite know with the internet the, the the reach that the internet has and how people write things down and never and don't check and don't fix um so you know good luck to find a, a world list of braille authorities that's current
4: yeah and i don't know that i was thinking i would put an ex- again an exhaustive list but i would you know
11: at least some references yeah
4: <laughs> like and, and and again, noting, hey, this isn't an exhaustive list, but because again, we we have to be careful that we don't get outside of our scope. Yes. But we do want them. We do want people to, you know, make an effort to find their. You know, their country's braille authority. Judy, I'm I just think this want to do a time check.
5: Hi. Oh, well, I was gonna just gonna say, I think this would be a good time to let the observers, if we could have just a couple of minutes for observers to make any comments on this topic, uh, that would be really helpful. Just before
9: uh, that, sorry, it's Cathy here. I think um, what this does highlight is the importance for ICE, all ICEB members, Braille authorities, to look at their policy as far as languages other than English within their own country.
5: Yes, that's a good point. Thank you.
9: So any observers, if you would
5: like to make a comment about this, please raise your hand. Anthony, if you would do hand monitoring, please.
13: Uh, Misty.
5: Okay. Okay.
16: Hi, guys. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Hi, this is Miss Dickenski from Bloomfield, Indiana, here in the US. Um, So I am a Latinist by training. And so my interest primarily focuses on the ancient languages. Um, As far as I know, I know of only one person who has tried to develop a code, a a, a contracted code for Latin. Obviously, you have the the Roman alphabet, so you don't need a a grade one. Uh, I looked at it. I'm I hate to say it, but I'm honestly, as a user of Latin, not impressed. Um, and I was just wondering, I mean, I do have some connections with other blind Latinists out there. I have a bit of a background in linguistics myself as well, uh, with the classics degree that I have. And I was just wondering sort of how someone like me would get started in maybe trying to develop a contracted system that the community would um, would approve of and perhaps might become universal.
4: Thanks. Thank you for that. I mean, I think that's, that's the hard part, right? That's kind of what we were talking about. I mean, obviously this is a little bit of a different, you know, Latin being, I, I also, I studied Latin in university. So um, I, uh, I have experience with, you know, the code that, what is, how, how it currently is presented. Um, again, I, I think it, it, all of these, a lot of the stuff that I've just said, apart from, obviously, you know, what the orthography is, but a lot of that, you know, and certainly it's probably less political as well, but a lot of the same things would apply. I mean, I'd be happy to talk with you just because I am also a Braille reader and I, I know Latin. I'd be happy to uh, connect with you sort of off, offline when we might have more mm-hmm. time to kind of talk about this and and, you know, think through how you know, what you might want to, what you might want to do, where you might want to start. Um, so you, mm-hmm. if you'd like, you can, the, um, the address where you, again, info at blc-lbc.ca, if you'd like to send me an email okay. there, we can. Um.
16: Almost definitely.
3: So
4: be sure, well, thanks so business. much. I
3: appreciate
16: it. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Good.
5: Anyone else? Okay, well, this has been a great discussion. And I think this is the first of several times that we will talk about this. And we will certainly be talking about it some more. Let's move now to our just open discussion of Braille promotion. And I want to open this up to observers right away because the executive committee has spent plenty of time discussing this. And this is, I know you heard what we're doing with social media, but what else? Are there other things we should be doing? Are there things, is what we're doing working? Um, I know we're preaching to the people who heard us (laughs) because you're here, but any thoughts about what else ICEB might do for promoting Braille and promoting ICEB?
17: Hanif? Hanif?
18: Hi there. Um, Welcome, Hanif. I'm
5: really happy you're here. I remember you from South Africa in 2012. You took care of our streaming. Thank you.
18: Oh, uh, I I was just going to say, it was good memories. (laughs) 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 No, I, I. this might have been discussed before, so I, I do apologize up front, but um when when you correspond um outside of um ICEB using um email, do you have signatures that would for example lead directly to a link where to subscribe to, for example, the mailing list? And that's the one thing. Um, the second thing is um do you have a very easy form that's you know easily accessible on the website, um, and you know even if you have one email or one one list or two lists, I don't know how many you have. I haven't looked at the site for for a bit. Um, do you have uh, an easy way to for people to actually subscribe, uh, something that's not confusing? That's it.
5: Thank you. Mary, do you know if we have anything on the website for ICEB Announce? I think we do, but I'm not. I can certainly imagine it there, but I'm not 100% um, sure.
12: Yeah, we do We do promote ICEB Announce, so. uh, but we don't promote um, the other uh, several lists that we have because, in theory, even observers, it's better... Um, Well, in the past, we have had the view that it's better for observers on various lists to come through a known source. Um, One of the things that email is not quite as bad, well, in my opinion, in my experience, not quite as bad as social media that I hear about is that our email lists are pretty well behaved and you get really, really good commentary on the lists that I'm monitoring, ICB lists, and and I think um, there's a little bit of protection, patch protection perhaps, and maybe the executive actually needs to look at promoting access to, um, to other lists. But, you know, thank you for raising that point because I don't think we've actually had a good conversation about it for quite a well, time.
5: What we have not done, and in the past, ICEB has had a of Braille discussion list, a general list to talk about Braille. And we have not resurrected that. Uh, I, when I moved all the lists to Groups.io, I did not move that one, and it's it's essentially dormant at this point. We could bring it back, we could re recreate it is what we would do, just start it up again, and promote the fact that, and this would not be an announced list. This would be a discussion list where people could ask questions about Braille. The issue, though, for us is maintenance and monitoring. You know, if do if we had the person power to monitor and you know, so if somebody asks a question. If someone on a list didn't answer it, someone from ICEB exec would answer it. Make sure that, that the list is responsive to people and that the information that's communicated is accurate and timely. So I think we would need to look at our uh, resources to see if, do we have the resources to do it. We may, and and if we do have people on the exec who are interested in being uh, monitors and, and resources on a list on a list such as that I'd like to hear from the observers. Would that I mean do you feel you have places to discuss braille and and hear about things?
6: Chair, can I just interject is James here? Yes, we yes, kind of, of do have uh some Email addresses that people can write to, to contact ICEB. I'm thinking. We particularly... do.
5: We have info at iceb.org, which is I I and uh, Natalie monitor that one, uh, and we have UEB at iceb.org, and Kathy monitors that
6: one. Sure. Uh, I was I was also thinking. Do we promote? Other existing lists, um, such as, for example, UEB-ED, which certainly in past oh, years, sure, s- switch sure over to UEB was incredibly active. It's less Wh- so now. Who
5: maintains that list? I
6: believe it's George Bell in the UK.
5: Yeah, I'm sure we don't. Um, and perhaps that's one of the other things we could do is is gather together a list of email lists that do discuss Braille and and maybe that's the way to go. Thoughts?
11: Judy, it's Natalie. Um, I am looking right now. So for those who who don't know this already, so there is a Braille promotions web page on the ICB website. Um I'm not sure how often we update it right now, uh, but it does have their headings for outreach activities, Braille in the news, UM. And information about the ICEB announced list, so maybe one of the things to consider would be, you know what additional resources to add to this web page, like existing listserv information, um, or other Braille, you know, relevant to ICB Braille promotions information, I and mean, we might want to keep here.
5: Yes, right now our promotion committee is is pretty busy. We've got yeah, so Natalie, lot. Natalie, and Jen and Miri all doing major jobs between Facebook, um. Uh, Twitter and Mary with the newsletter. So if we were going to, we can certainly update a page, but if we were going to take on additional tasks, we we need more resources. We need people who are interested. So observers, we are sending out the call. If any of you are interested in getting more involved with ICEB, especially helping us with promotion, because it's something we could do, we could do more. We can easily set up lists. We can easily uh, have these kinds of conversations online, and I, I wouldn't mind us raising our raising the awareness. Uh, but we would need people to help. So, if you're interested at all, please send me an email. You can send an email to info at ICEB.org. That would be fine. Or to me, Judy at JudyDixon.net. So that would be be good.
9: Just looking at the website under the National Braille Authorities, which is under the contact page, um, there are links to show how to subscribe to the Australian listserv, the AusBraille, the Braille Literacy Canada listserv, uh, the New Zealand, no, not uh, New, New Zealand list and the UEB Ed Listserv. So that information is there on the ICEB website.
5: Is there? Are they, is it buried so deep that nobody would ever find it?
9: P- possibly. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is there, but it might need to be brought out a little bit um, yes. St- stronger. Yes.
18: Uh, Judy, yes, it's Hanif again. Um, I I just want to maybe highlight that if <clears throat> um, if things are not tagged correctly, um, talking about the search engine optimization, and referenced or referred to from time to time in blog posts and so forth, then they kind of uh, get lost in the search engine. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, I, I would say infinity sort of. So it's, it's probably a good idea that from time to time, either those who are managing, and this is only my, my suggestion, those who are managing the social media accounts who sometimes have templates referring to these little things from time to time, and then also maybe to uh, refer to or to freshen up those pages, um, just really? add the necessary keywords so that the search engines can be more kind uh, to, to them when people search for it.
14: Thank you.
5: That's a really good point. Thank you. Yes. Yes, that's good.
18: We
14: have a hand up from uh, Debbie.
5: Debbie? I don't know which Debbie, but we'll find out.
14: Gillespie. Uh,
19: try, Gillespie. Gillespie. There you Gillespie. Go. Gillespie. Hello, Debbie. Hey, hello, June. Good to talk to you. Um, um, I think I would be careful about just opening out, beginning new email lists. I think unless we're certain that you know, it can be monitored. It's, there's a lot of maintenance to it. So I think perhaps start with a reorg of what's already there, because you do have to drill down some, you know, to find certain things you're looking for. And it might be simply just to have, you know, different, different options, even accordion menus, for example, where you could just you want to know more about it you just you know you you collapse and expand those items and that way people don't have to actually open another page um would be an option uh but just to bring the bring the information further forward so you mean, know how to, write don't those? to i don't i don't I, I, mean, don't. I, shouldn't, <laughs> say I, I shouldn't say I don't I have done it, but it's not something that I would do on a regular basis, Um, simply because I, you know, every time it seems to be more of a hit and miss effort when I do it, when other people do it, it works the first time around. Um, (laughs) But 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 you're right, Um, I can find out more about it because I keep saying I'm going to and I haven't yet. So that might just be the impetus. All right.
5: I would welcome I would welcome your help with us because I like those kind of menus. And I think you're right. They do help you not have to drill down and look around so much. So yeah. um,
19: let's figure out now how to James, do it. James, James may know more about this. James tonight. may but know. It, oh,
6: yeah. right. It's a while since I tried that kind of dynamic HTML. Look, I, I'll, I've I'll... done
19: it. <laughs> yeah, it's not to the faint of heart. I can tell you that because, you know, it works sometimes and it doesn't work. Either. There's something I, I don't know that I sure. need to, but I don't know. About. But regardless, Judith. I think even a reorg with that page, even whether you didn't do the accordions, Um, according to those who don't understand the terminology, and it took me a while to get it to, is uh, expandable and collapsible menus. And you can write them, but does it translate if you're using a screen reader? Like some screen readers accept them better than others in some cases, and there's there's issues with that. Um, Regardless, I think if you do a reorg of the page, it would still help to get all of this kind of in one location rather than opening and closing different pages. Right.
4: Uh, Judy. Yes, Jen. Um I was just gonna say in in with that idea of a reorg to figuring out okay who has access to all these and who like how do we want to use what we already have. And just as a heads up it, you know, as somebody who monitors, you know, a couple of different lists, <laughs> it, it's <laughs> Um, the thing about it is that some of the questions people ask take you two seconds to answer. Others can take a lot longer. And so, you know, when it comes to the sort of thing, I, like, I'm happy to help with stuff like this, but you never want to be the only person monitoring a certain list. So especially a more widespread Braille related list, you'd want to have a few people that were dedicated to it just because it can, yes, it can get very time consuming. I, I agree. People.
5: I'm very, I'm very concerned and aware about are taking on more than we can do let's do what we do well and let's but let's you know let's do what we can and so it, finding that balance between doing what we do well but doing as as much as we reasonably can and doing what really needs to be done um, is something that that's something we need to to be very aware of
17: Judy. hi Judy. mike townsend here hello mike um, something we're doing in the UK uh, with the um, Technology Association of Visually Impaired People, we've looked at the competes, competencies, can I say that this night, uh, related to employment. And what, with the EU and the UK, we've done some surveys related to technology, particularly that's our bag. But one of the strong competencies relating to employment is the knowledge of Braille and the use of Braille. And so what we have done, we're developing a set of skills and skills development work. And Braille is an important part of that and an understanding of that. So that's nothing to do with the logistics of promoting Braille. It's one of the things that we are doing, promoting Braille. And maybe I should write something up for the news, maybe about it.
5: That would be very nice. Thank you so much. James were you trying to say something?
17: Yeah, I was just I just wanted to pick
6: up on something that Hanif said about search engines. I think it's it's a timely reminder that not everybody comes in through the front door of the website. A lot of people will search with their favorite search engine and come in at a random page. So in some ways longer pages are less helpful than shorter pages. Uh, because the search engine will, will, will certainly find the information no matter how long the page is. But if you have to scroll down several screens to find it, you've lost the customer.
5: I agree. And you're right. People, especially because of search engines, people don't start out at the place we think they're going to, which is why a lot of websites have bread not breadcrumbs what are those things called at yeah, the top of the page yeah breadcrumbs yeah yeah that where you can see how you got there and and where all else you can go and i mean our website needs uh, i'm i consider myself an interim temporary webmaster it needs attention by people who know a lot more than i do so that's why i started out by saying we could certainly use some website help from anyone who knows how to do this cuz I am not the permanent uh, web person well, no one's the permanent web person, but we could use some help and that would be really good. All right, it is 525 and we are going to take a five minute break. Um, Katie Rada from the National Library Services here. Welcome, Katie. I am going to be leaving all of you, as I indicated at the beginning. I apologize for this, Uh, but all of you, the rest of you will stay. And uh, at 5.30, uh, Jordi Howell will take over to lead the session on music. Okay? So we'll take a break. Thank you.
0: You are listening to live coverage of the International Council on English Braille's midterm executive committee meeting for 2022. And as just indicated, uh, 10.25pm in the UK, which is uh, 5.25pm in Canada. Um, And joining me um, as ever are our two commentators, Ashley Shaw and Kim Kilpatrick. And um, I want to know what you thought of that session. That was very lively, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, really. Uh, so much to think about. I think all the languages and thinking about different codes and how to promote Braille. Yeah, so lively.
2: Mm, so many things to consider.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, the the languages thing was something we didn't really touch on at the start of the day because I didn't think there would be much said about the languages thing and uh, well well boy was I wrong wasn't it interesting there's so much that I mean I, I I've worked as a braille transcriber and um have done you know not represented the UK on the CMC but have observed on CMC and think I know a lot about codes and things and and even I was just blown away by what was being said there
1: well yeah and especially complicated um languages or just making sure that it's not a code that's imposed on people and all the different languages in different countries that people are thinking about this in yeah it's it's uh, Mm. that was really interesting to me that whole conversation
2: that was something i picked up on too because it's so familiar to me this kind of have you checked in with your community of of users um, or for the people you know who are actually going to be living with and uh, and using this code, it's it's so similar to, you know, when we get folks contacting us because they've ripped up some prototype of some assistive
1: tech. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: It just? Have you yeah. ever met
2: or spoken to a potential end user or done any kind of needs assessment or any of those sorts of things beforehand? Like, often yeah, absolutely. that's not the case. And so I think this is similar, except you add the complication of language into it as well. So, you know, people who would are are potential Braille users and are um, speakers of the language in question, you know, now you've got this intersectionality involved and have you have you connected with (laughs) with any Mm. of these people or did you just kind of have a nice idea? So it's good to remind people.
1: I was thinking about too as some of the short forms that are in English Braille, like for example, K for knowledge, not that knowledge isn't a good word, but is that actually the word you would want? for k you know it sort of got me thinking are there words who put these words and decided these would be the short forms like rather Mm -hmm. rather and knowledge those are the ones i i think of the most but i mean maybe there aren't better words but it's kind of like it gets you thinking like who actually compiled those was it a a user you know that figured Mm -hmm. out These are the ones
0: I want. (laughs) Maybe we should do a podcast about that on on BrailleCast because it is a fascinating subject. I think it was users and I think it was a, a committee... I want to say in the early part of the 1900s that sorted all of that out, but I honestly can't remember. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a fair point. I mean, look, do we really want to change the English Braille code? Probably not because people are so used to those signs meaning what they mean and it would break all sorts of backwards compatibility. But it is a good point, isn't it, that language has changed and the words that we would have chosen now would be very different to the words that they chose then. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, I, it, yeah, it, it's so interesting and interesting to think about email lists versus Facebook, Twitter. Um, I know the blind community has hung on to email lists a lot longer maybe than the sighted community has because they are really accessible. <laughs> and I know a lot of blind people. I know I'm on too many email lists sometimes. Oh, I Oh, of course. But, again, like where do you put your publicity and your time and energy? Like that was an interesting discussion, too.
0: Mm. Well, it's 29 minutes past the hour, which means we will be hitting half past the hour very soon. And I'm keeping an eagle eye on Zoom for when Geordie starts her report. Um, there are currently 47 people on Zoom and uh, we are going to fade Geordie up now.
20: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night. <laughs> I hope everyone is well. I'm Geordie Hall, and I'm the chair of the Music Committee of ICEB and it's really exciting to go through the participant list today and see all these familiar names and some of these voices I haven't even heard. Yesterday I heard Niels Matheser for the first time. That was very exciting. Um, So welcome everyone and I'm really happy to be talking today about uh, the digitization of braille music. The US is a very big player in this field and not many other countries have invested a lot of time because it, it does take a lot of time and a lot of resources to do this um, so i'm very interested um, katie rudder do you hear about the software that you use and the process that they, that you use and how how this um, occurs and i know that um, there have been questions raised from the music committee and you indicated in an email to me that this topic does um does elicit uh, quite a few questions. So Katie Roder, uh, Reader Services Librarian from the National Library Service. I'm really uh, looking forward to hearing about the digitization of Braille music. Thank you.
21: Well, thank you so much, Jordy. I'm really glad uh, to be here and talk about this topic with you all. Um, Before I get started talking about what NLS, what the NLS music section has done over the years, um, I would be interested to know um, if, how many of you who are on the call now have used uh, braille scanning technology before, either for music or for other um, hard copy braille. Um, If you have, feel free to raise your hand or put it in the chat. Um, or tell me at the end. I just think that would be really interesting. I haven't really spoken to many other people um, outside of NLS who have have used this kind of technology before. Um, So in this presentation, I I will be talking about why we digitize our braille music, um, as well as how we do it, uh, what's what kind of programs we use currently to digitize our braille music, and where we are hoping to go in the future. Um, so why do we digitize our braille music? Um, Obviously, uh, you know Bard is a big part of the NLS collection. A lot of our materials are available on Bard. A lot of our patrons are now only downloading things from Bard, so that's where our audio, our digital audio and braille materials reside. Um, and we want to get as much as our of our music collection up on Bard as possible. Um, right now, about 25% of our braille music collection is available on Bard, which is great. Um, but we do have a long ways to go, so we want to make sure that we have as much accessible through BARD as possible, especially as more and more patrons are using BARD. Um, The second reason is space. Obviously you all know Braille takes up a lot of space and some, especially some of our music books um, that are textbooks, Um, you know, music history textbooks, they are 30 plus volumes, and they just take up a lot of space on our shelves, especially if we have multiple copies of each of those books for circulating to patrons. So the more that we can have digital copies, the less um, hard copy versions that we would need to keep on hand to circulate. And lastly is um, preservation. So we want to make sure that all of our materials are digitally digitally preserved. You know, Unlike regular sheet music, print sheet music, um, we can't go out and buy a replacement of some of this material. It's all, I won't say it's all one of a kind, but a lot of it is one of a kind material. And a lot of it is old material. A lot of our material is from the early 20th century, um, late 19th century, even in some cases. And you know it's not really something that we should be sending out in the mail um, and having individuals you know use. It's something that we, should, we need to keep uh, on hand to make sure that it's preserved correctly. And by digitizing it, we're making it accessible to our patrons and also ensuring that that hard copy version um, you know is, is maintained. So a little background on our digitization efforts. Um, We have been actively digitizing music at NLS since about 2003, Um, but we've only recently started a large-scale push to digitize the entire collection, Um, and by recently, I mean probably about the last five years or so. for us, you know, in the music section, scanning accuracy is of the utmost importance, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about this when I discuss our different types of scanning software. Um, for those of you who use Braille music, you know, um, one dot missing or extra could mean the difference in an interval sign. It could mean the difference in an octave sign, which is crucial information for music Braille. Um, so. If we can make our scans as accurate as possible, we ensure that that information is uh, accurate for the patron. So our first braille scanning uh, software that we use is called optical braille recognition or OBR. We've actually used the software since 2003. So we've been using the same software for almost 20 years now. Um, It uses a flatbed scanner with A software component on the computer Um, now this software is like since you can tell since I say we've been using it since 2003 it's a bit old. Um, The company that created the software is from the Czech Republic and they are no longer in business. Um, And it can only be run on up to a Windows 7 machine. So we have a specialized computer that runs this software, and that's where we do our scanning for this software. And you might be asking, why do you still use this software if it's so old and you have to use it on an old computer? Well, that's because it actually scans interpoint Braille fairly accurately, um, which uh, I'll talk about a little bit later, Interpoint Braille makes up about 75% of our collection. And it's really difficult to get an accurate scan of um, because the depressions on one side get confused with the hills. So making sh- having a software that can distinguish those two dots um, on each side of the page, um, is, it's, it's difficult to do and having a software that can do it fairly accurately is really, really important so that's why we still use it um that that being said this software isn't um 100 percent foolproof. there are some issues with it so um i'm just going to briefly describe how the software works so there's a menu box that has a few options on it so you can select things like the size of the braille cell itself um, you can set things like if it's six dot or eight dot braille and there's a few other options. Or you can set everything to automatic, which is what we do. It's pretty good at picking things up automatically. So you have that menu box. And then you have a scan button in that menu box. And the flatbed scanner takes the scan. And a text box appears um, with the ASCII Braille rendering. So it's a completely, there's no visual component to it really at all. Um, so there's no visual. F- uh, photo of the braille page that you see or anything like that it's the software is taking that image and immediately translating it into an ascii braille text file um so that ascii braille is displayed and for a visual person such as myself um i can't really read or i shouldn't say i can't read ascii braille i don't really know what i'm looking at but i can tell when um it's not picking things up correctly. So, for example, sometimes it will take a mirror image of a page. So, you know, a, a number sign, which is sometimes shown at the beginning of a line for a measure, is dots one, two, three, and six. Um, and it will flip it and reverse it so that instead of that being on the left hand side of the page, it will actually be dots one, two, three, and four. On the right-hand side of the page, so it'll completely reverse the image, so the ASCII is back backwards essentially. Um, And there is a way to flip it in the software, which is really handy because I don't know what we would do if it wasn't. Um, But that is one of the issues we encounter with this software. Another issue that we have is the scanner not picking up the cells. So if I've found that if the cells on a page are not perfectly aligned, either horizontally or vertically, um, it will not pick up those characters and instead it just puts question marks in where it's where the ASCII Braille character should be so um, as a visual person using this program um, I can tell that oh that's you know it's just full of question marks which is not what the ASCII rendering would be at all um, so I can tell that there's an issue with that scan. We have some ways of working around this um, but typically, there's not a lot of wiggle room. If a scan is bad, we just have to take it to our braille proofreader and say, can you fix this? Um, which is very time consuming for them. Um, it's obviously not something that they <laughs> wanna be doing with their time. Um, and it's you know frustrating for us because we wanna make sure that these scans are accurate. And if we get something that's kind of complete gibberish then it just takes more and more time to make sure that it's 100% accurate. Um, Our next scanning program that I'm gonna talk about is called DotScan, um, which is a braille scanning software developed in Germany, um, which was originally intended for use uh, for braille on prescription labels used over there. Um, DotScan, unlike the OBR software, it has its own proprietary scanning scanner. Um, It's a large box, um, and it has four light bulbs in each corner of the box. I I forget the science, there's a scientific term for that kind of scanning. I'm sorry, I don't remember it off the top of my head. But basically, those four bulbs um, eliminate all the shadows that would exist from these dots, um, and it's able to create a scan from that image um now the the issue with dot scan is that it does not do any sort of double sided interpoint braille very well um this unlike the obr is a very visual um based system so when we take a scan we have to go in and manually set the distance between dots in a cell the dots uh, between two cells in a line, and then the distance between the lines. So we have to literally click and drag our mouse between these dots to set those distances. And dot scan will take those measurements and create a grid, uh, which will overlay the Braille page. Um, so like I said, it's very manual, it's very visual. Um, what it does with that overlay then is it will say I think it'll it'll take the braille page image and overlay this grid that it developed from the measurements you gave it and say I think there's a dot here there's supposed to be a dot here and I think it's dot and there's supposed to be a dot here and I think it's dot there's supposed to be a dot here but there's no dot and you have to go in as the user and confirm what um, dot scan has said, I think this is a dot. I don't think this is a dot. Um, So the proofreading side of it is also a very visual um, and uh, time-consuming process. We have to go in and visually inspect what the actual Braille page looks like, versus what dot scan is saying, I think this is the dot. I think this is the dot. And say, yes, you're right, or no, that's not right. And we have to manually fix it. Dot scan uh, is time-consuming, as I mentioned. It does take the user um, time to go in and you know visually inspect everything. It doesn't do interpoint braille very well, and uh, it's not. It's good for what it does, but it's for our purposes since about seventy-five percent of our collection is interpoint. Um, it's not really. It's not really accurate or speedy enough to do uh, what we would want it to do. That being said, it's still great to have. We're glad we have it and we're glad we're using it for our scans. Um, So the last thing I want to talk about with our current system is our proofreading. So for both of these systems, um, they do output a BRF file. Um, The OBR scan, because there is no proofreading involved on the scanning side, it always has to go to our braille music proofreader, um, who has to go through it, add page breaks, fix any errors, um, and just ensure that it's up to our standards. Now, the dot scan, because there is a visual editing component, does not always go through the braille proofreader ideally it would ideally we would have six braille proofreaders on staff that would allow that to happen but um right now we only have one so in the in order to save time um you know we we send the ones that definitely need to be proofread to our braille proofreader um, who then ensures their accuracy. Our dot scan ones that have been proofed by a sighted person, um, they will go up on BARD, but we do put a note on there that they've been partially proofread um, so that if a person does find issues or, or any errors in the score, they can let us know and we will fix them. So that's kind of where we are now that's what we do at NLS at the moment, Um, so i'm just going to talk a little bit about where we're hoping to go with our scanning endeavors in the future. Um, So in 2019 um, we started working with some of our colleagues here at the library of Congress um, who work in the digitization services section um, and they do digitization scanning services for all sections of the library. Um, And they work a lot, actually, with 3D printing. So we had started talking with them about potentially using 3D technology um, to assist with this scanning endeavor. Um, So both of our scanners at the moment that I talked about before, the dot scan and the OBR, um, they're both 2D scanners. They take a flat image of the page Whereas this technology would be using a laser scanner um, to actually measure the height and depth of each dot. Um, So this, we are hoping, would be a much more accurate scan. Unfortunately, we started this in about October of 2019, um, and it got indefinitely put on hold in March of 2020 for obvious reasons. Um, A lot of what we were working on was physically building the scanning apparatus, um, which had to be done completely on site here at the library. Um, And the team that was working on it um, wasn't able to resume work really until um, about August of last year. But we have resumed work on it. And uh, we're hoping maybe in the next year and a half to two years from now, we will have a fully functioning prototype. Um, But like I said, this is some 3D technology that would be about, in terms of time, it would take about as long as it would our OBR scan to scan one interpoint page. So it would be about 15 seconds with this laser technology to scan an interpoint page. And it would output both uh, the recto and the verso sides. Um, So we're looking forward to the program being ready for us to test soon. Um, And we're really hoping that this will speed up our scanning endeavors and that we will be able to uh, put a lot more of our braille materials on BARD and uh, have them digitized in general uh, for preservation purposes in the next few years. So that's about all I have. Um, Jordi, do you wanna see if there's any questions?
20: Apologies, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, reconnecting things. Yes, so I firstly would like to um, just talk a little bit about the um, music committee's discussions around the digitization of braille music. And um, particularly we had some queries from the UK that I'd hope that you could address, and then I will open it up to uh, the committee and then to observers. But um, when considering uh, digitizing old scores, um, some of our, Australia has also found this, some of, we've we've found that these scores, obviously in our older collections are are A, not current editions, uh, B, they're, they're not in a format well, they're in a format which is obsolete. Like for example, you've got bar by bar or um, in the European score section by section. Um they're in a braille code, so for example, not Ueb or or um, other codes. And also the paper size can be (laughs) markedly different. Um, We have the the miniature scores, the scores produced with a slate and stylus. I've certainly got a lot of those in my own collection here, the piano, uh, Chopin, Preludes and things like that. Um, And also the signs in a lot of these older scores have changed. For example, with Bar-By-Bar, the... the, um, part in a chord sign that we know and love now was used as the full in a chord sign uh, back in bar by bar days. So um, how do you make a decision? Like, are there scores that you choose not to digitise? How do you, I suppose, address some of these kind of issues? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So,
21: yeah, how do we prioritise? So obviously, Bar by bar, if we, have a, if we have a score that's bar by bar, uh, well, let me take a step back. So we kind of have three tiers of prioritization for digitization. So one is if a patron requests something that isn't digitized, or they request something and we only have one copy of on the shelf and we need a digital copy to make sure that we don't send out the last copy. So that's kind of an easy one because we don't have to really make a decision. Someone wants it and we need to have it digitized. Um, the second, tier is basically for preservation purposes so that's when we have to kind of make some of these more difficult decisions um and yeah you're right usually we we tend to um prioritize things that are bar by bar in the correct braille format um, that we know are going to be used by patrons that being said we kind of do take a both and approach because we don't want to exclude something On the off chance that one day someone you know might say, "Oh, you had this piece," and we say, "Yeah, it's kind of fell apart. We don't have it digitized. We don't have it anymore," Uh, you know. So, in terms of, we don't prioritize things that are not bar by bar um, or bar over bar, but um, we do try to scan as much as possible, just because in the sake of us having a. I want to say a complete Braille collection, but us having, um, you know, the the most robust Braille collection possible because part of our collection too is history. I think um, we do have, you know, we're a circulating library. Of course, we want to make sure that everything is usable by the patrons and that we have material that's usable by them, but we also want to make sure that we preserve that history side of it as well. So we want to make sure that those scores that are from the late 19th century that we have in the collection may still be accessible to people 50 years from now um, in a digital format. Um, But I will say also, if we have something that is, say we have an old Chopin prelude that's in section by section format, and it's not really you know, it's just not what our patrons would use. And we don't have any other version in the collection. We would typically then ask, um, you know, that we would contract that out to be transcribed in a new bar over bar format. So we try to make sure that if it's something that we only have in one format that we think will be a popular patron request, um, that we have it in an up-to-date usable format.
20: Yeah, thank you. some of our, certainly in Australia, organisations have taken the decision that if a student needs a particular piece for examination, um, they will retranscribe it either with software or manually because it's quicker than using the digitisation process. We used to use OBR too, but we just ran out of resources and time, and so they've changed focus. What would you What would you say about that? You know, if a, a student needs that that current um, edition or
21: yeah, I think yeah, I think it depends on what exactly they're looking for. Um uh, some stuff is a lot easier to quickly transcribe than others. Um I would say yeah, that's that that that's definitely there's definitely something to that that having uh having a newer transcription would be faster than um, scanning it. I think for us, in the US federal government system, that might not be the case. Um, But some other entities, it might be a lot faster to have that transcription done um, than trying to scan it, for sure.
20: Uh, And the last thing that I wanted to um, ask you before I hand over to everyone else, is around the Marrakesh Treaty and copyright. Now that we have access to that, um, do you envisage, or are there plans to make that process of, of exchanging material internationally more streamlined through NLS?
21: Um that's a great question. I uh I would love to make it more streamlined. Yes. Um we'll see, you know, it's kind of uh we're still kind of feeling our way through it I think and how it's yeah. all working. Um so I do hope that down the road we it will be a much more streamlined process. Um Yeah, I don't I mean it's in everyone's favor that it becomes more streamlined for sure. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. would hope that yeah, the process uh, does get a little bit uh smoother, shall we say, down the road.
20: Yeah. I'm wondering like through the accessible books consortium and things like that, you know, initiatives mm-hmm. like that, that it might might help a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for that uh presentation. I found that thoroughly interesting. I'm going to go back to my organization and tell them about dot scan. <laughs> yeah. Um, shame that it uses the um the specific, you know, the proprietary scanner. It's kind of disappointing, but I'm I'm really interested in following your progress. On the laser scanner and the three D um, scanning solutions that are, you know, that are coming in, and hopefully you can resume that project soon.
21: Yeah, we're hoping. You know, the second half of this year, we're really going to start uh, making a lot of progress with it. So we'll we'll yeah. definitely be updating, especially through our blog. We'll probably have some updates there. Um, so if you're not uh, readers of our the NLS Music Notes blog, uh, sign up and oh, okay.
20: follow yep. us there. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Are you going to stay around? I mean, we'll ask questions now, but are you going to stay around for the remainder of our session today? Or do you have other things?
21: No, I can stay around for,
20: oh, uh, fantastic! yeah. Excellent. It'll be great yeah. to have you mm-hmm. as part of it. Sure. So if I then open up the discussion to our um, music committee. Um, now, do I have any uh, raised hands? Does anyone would anyone like to <laughs> contribute to the discussion talk about your own experiences of music digitization do we have any hands raised
13: hanif hanif
18: i am um, actually just uh, katie you you asked uh, right at the beginning when you started your presentation um you you wanted to know if anybody else <laughs> ever used um obr or something similar. Um, and I can say I've played with it about uh, 20 years ago, um, but not necessarily for music Braille, but just uh, Arabic Braille uh, and scanning in, in general. And um, I'm presuming that, uh, you know, this is more a comment and also partly a question, you probably have to be really careful uh, with the, the, you know, the binding of the older books that you scan, and you probably also have quite a bit of struggle um, getting hold of um A3, good A3 um size scanners to actually scan the books. Um, yeah, that's basically all I wanted to say. Thank you.
21: Yeah, you're you're correct. Well thank you for letting me know um that you've used OBR. And I'm I really like OBR. I'm very I'm I wish the company was still around because I feel like they could have developed this software into something really great. Um, but yes, the binding does become an issue. Um, we have, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, we've broken the binding on books, but you do have to try to get it as flat as possible uh, when you're doing the scan, because yeah, it's, it won't pick up all the dots, um, unless you do. And I found that a lot of times the dots, uh, the cells that are in the near the center of the book just don't get picked up sometimes. And that's where our Braille proofreader really, um, you know, is crucial to this process to make sure that those dots uh, and cells are represented in the final product. Um, But yeah, we, we've had some issues with hard, especially, you know, hardbound books, um, which are are wonderful and beautiful to have, but they make digitization kind of a pain sometimes. and we're lucky here at the Library of Congress that we haven't had too many issues finding a good scanner for our purposes. But um, yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been nice to have the OVR software, and I hope it doesn't kick can anytime soon.
18: <laughs> if I may, just uh, have a follow up question, Jay, If I may, um, the three Ds. 3D- Thank you. The 3D scanning, does it uh, not overcompensate when you scan a book that, that's folded, for example, or does it, uh, is there a way to manipulate it so it doesn't, um, you know, move away, um, you know, the, the image far, farther away from, from the actual camera? So in other words, can you bring it closer? Can you magnify it and correct it somehow? Um, in other words, in, I guess, ultimately then not having to uh, damage the binding of the book. I don't know if I've made myself clear. Thank you.
21: Yeah. So, the way that this scanning software would operate, the book would actually lay flat. Um, We would open it flat um, and we would probably need to, depending on how tough the binding was, you know, if it wouldn't stay open, um, we would probably need to hold it down on the side somehow. But the idea is that the scanning software would, um, you know, scan the left side, scan the right side uh and then or scan one side it would scan the sorry it would scan the right side which would get both the front and back pages you would turn the page and then it would scan that right side on the next page um etc so there would hopefully be no damage to the binding of the book because our digitization services here at the library of congress is acutely aware of you know preservation of hard copy materials. So they would definitely be um,
20: making sure that that is preserved.
14: Uh, We have a hand from Niels. Niels
20: Matisser, lovely to hear from you. What's your question?
22: Thank you, uh, Jordi. Uh, Yes, we are writing books manually (laughs) with um, Daxbury. So uh, yes, I didn't try anything to scan anything because we in South Africa use not only bar over bar, but we also use note by note. So we are not making use of the um, the signs for for um, what do you call those signs?
20: Intervals
22: or, yeah, interval signs. We're not using interval signs because we are using. We thought in South Africa a blind student must memorize from the beginning, so we don't use interval signs. We know we use note for note system, so um, this will also be a terrible scanning process process for us to do some scanning by a note for note system instead of interval signs
20: i meant to contact you before now and find out more about the note for note system because it's something that i'm personally unfamiliar with but i'd like to learn about it to just you know 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 what it is do you have quite a collection in in south africa of uh, note for note transcriptions that could be uh, scanned for your,
22: um, yeah, for your students. Um, the the thing is we we don't scan any music at the stage. We mm. we write them. We've got one pro producer down in Worcester, Mrs. Susan Muller, and she's also now retired. But luckily, the Pioneer Printers got her on a contract base to 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 do music for us, and. Um, well it's it's for me really at the school for the visually impaired um a real thing if she retires she's retired so she's now training somebody but she already had two trainees and they both failed <laughs> but <laughs> yes um but at this moment we don't scan anything we we type them with our two hands, with a six slot input mode in Duxbury. Um And we've got quite a few um, things the UNISA piano syllabus of the University of South Africa. We did the pre grade one up to grade five. They did the 2016 editions because it's a the current syllabus used by the University of South Africa. So they've got all the Braille music for piano. They've got note by note, bar over bar. Because as in UEB, we believe that it must be the exact as the cited copy as well. Now I know the bar by bar method. I grew up with it. Um, and when we've got music, especially from the RNIB, I know it's bar by bar. So, yeah, it's not bar over bar. So it's left hand one bar, right hand one bar, then left hand and then second bar, and then right hand the second bar. So, <laughs> yes, um, but I must say the bar over bar method is for me Right, um, it's it's looking like the sighted because I can see a bit, not good enough to sight read anymore, but yes, um, but I love the note by note system because I don't have to think, what does this interval stand for? And, and all that kind of thing. So the notes, our children see the notes and they can memorize. We're also using the books by... The two um, American sisters uh, read, remember, and play, um, and that's how we teach our beginners um, for Braille music.
20: Well, it's interesting to hear about, and I know for ham- to, harmonizations in theory contexts, uh, some students might prefer that note by note method, so that they don't have to think, oh, you know, C crotchet it with its fourth, sixth you know, octave and third or whatever the chord is if you're doing a first inversion chord, whereas like for me who has learnt piano from uh, at the age of five, the intervals are, are automatic, and so yeah. um, it's yeah. just a different way of thinking, isn't it?
22: Mm. Yeah. It is yeah. just a different way of thinking, but it yeah. also helps with the harmonisation. When we do a four-part harmony in metric, yeah. for instance, where they must add the bass and the the alto and the tenor parts, they yeah. are so used to, to the four lines because we use the imaginary cleft uh, for the
14: alto and the yeah. tenor parts.
20: Yeah. I understand that.
14: We have a hand from James.
20: Ah, thank you.
6: James, can I Hello. call on you? Um Katie, thank you so much for your presentation. Absolutely fascinating. I remember speaking to, I think it was John Hansen in 2016 and beginning a similar conversation, but never ending it. So it's great to hear the end of the story at last. Um, I'd like to ask you and Niels the same question, if I may, how long does it take you to process a typical full page of Braille music so Katie you're using the electronics and a proofread and Niels your hand coding I'll be very interested to know a time how long it takes typically per page
21: so I will say now this is gonna vary every page is a little bit different but if it's um, for us if it's a good scan um, it would take maybe like two to five minutes um, to fully scan and edit the page. Um, now, if it has a lot of issues, that could take a lot longer. Um, but on a good scan, um, two to five minutes. So, a, f- a full, you know, if you have a 30 page Braille book, say, um, it would take probably about 30 minutes to an hour to get through.
22: And with me, it takes me up to half an hour to do a full page of music, say piano piece. Um, I didn't even went further for choir pieces and those kind of things. But the piano piece, uh, grade one standard will take me up to half an hour. And then it must still be proofread because I can make mistakes. It's just humane. Sure.
6: No, I appreciate yes, that, that because I've tried uh, manually digitising some of the hard copy scores I have here. So have I. And uh, <laughs> yes. it took quite a long time, especially when I proofread it three times.
20: Yes, and I know certainly uh, at Vision Australia we work with volunteer readers too and transcribe, as you said, Niels, with the uh, direct Braille um, entry mode in Duxbury, and I'll be doing that this afternoon as well. And, uh, yeah depending on the reader's uh, proficiency, uh, whether we've trained them up to use the right terminology in the right order, that can take a while. Um, obviously, it's um, it can get pretty fast though when you've got a nice shorthand code that you're working in. Um, do we have any other hands?
14: Nope, no other hands now.
20: I was interested, Katie, in asking you, has the NLS uh, embarked on scanning print music at all? And are you going the other way? So, you know, using, um, you know, automation, software automation at all?
21: Yeah. So we've just within the past year or so finally, um, got, uh, things like SharpEye and Lime on our computers, um, which we've, I've been wanting for a long time, but for whatever reason, we, we hadn't gotten them. Um, so, Right now, we're kind of dipping our toes in the water for public domain items um, to see if, you know, what we can do, how that would work, the workflow for us. Since it's so new, we haven't really uh, developed it yet. Um, But we are hoping that down the road, that's something that we can start doing as well. Um, Now that, like I said, that's just for public domain items. So, um, you know, we're hoping maybe down the road, we'll be able to get You know, but I say public domain, because it's easily we can get those files easily. It's not necessarily because as you know, with Marrakesh, we can get anything copyright free. um, But it's a little bit more difficult to get the the digital PDF of a file. Um, you know, we could scan it and all of that, but right now we're starting with things that are already digitally accessible uh, that we can download from things like IMSLP and uh, the MuseScore uh, repository and things like that. Um, so we've we have the software finally, and we're we're hoping to get down that road soon. Um, the next next few years,
20: I think. Excellent. Yeah, thank you for that. I'll be I'll be interested in uh, to st- stay in touch and hear about the progress. Of your work around that, mm-hmm. both both the um, you know OBR stuff, uh, digitising hard copy material as well as the um, music automation. Any further questions before we thank Katie and move on to the um, ICEB Music Committee report?
6: Katie, is James again? Have you tried, or are you involved with the Daisy projects?
21: So we are a little bit at the moment, the most in uh, right now, we're working a lot with the uh, music uh metadata program and i see uh sarah on sarah uh morley wilkins on this call as well um we've had a fair number of meetings over the past few months working with uh metadata for braille music materials um but as as far as i know we haven't really done too much else i think our the music section head juliet appold has done has gone to some of uh, the daisy braille music meetings um, but, um, I have not been involved with those directly.
6: No, no, f- forgive me. Um, I don't mean the meetings. I mean, actually trying the projects.
21: Oh, the like project the scan and, the meet- I see. and they make
6: braille and that kind of thing.
21: No, we have not tried. We have not used any of those yet. Um, we, uh, we haven't dipped our toes in those waters at the moment. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Thank you.
20: Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Well, um, hopefully you do get to, to be part of those discussions. It would be really cool to have contributions from NLS there too in that way. But but we can also learn a lot from you with the digitization of hard copy music braille because for a long time the ICEB Music Committee had as one of its resolutions, many General Assemblies, several of them, to um, a call to action to preserve the hard copy of music braille. And you are all doing that very well and... Um, it's very difficult in other countries that probably are a little bit more resource poor and don't have the resources to digitise all those scores, which are slowly deteriorating, which is very sad. So really lovely to hear from you. Thank you so much. I hope you can stay around for the uh, rest of the discussion. Yeah,
21: you're very welcome. Yeah. And thank you all uh, for having me.
20: <laughs> so uh, moving on then to the ICEB Music Committee report, Um, I'd just like to explain a bit about our committee. Uh, We work to align braille Music to UEB, and we do this um, through an an email list discussing material uh, relating to resolutions passed at the ICEB General Assembly. We have a voting member from each member country, and observers are also very much part of the discussion. Our committee, as Mary did yesterday, I'll just go through our members. So I'm the Australian representative and and chair of the committee. In Canada, we have Karkit Tam. It's great to see you on the call, Karkit. Uh, In Ireland, we have Stuart Lawler, and I believe he's here as well, which is excellent. In New Zealand, we have Moya Michalakis, and she's here too, I think. Niels Mathesert, who we heard from before from South Africa. In the UK, we have Claire Guylands. And in the US, we did have... um, Karen Gerald, I can never get her surname correct. Um, sadly, she's recently uh, stood down, but we're just awaiting for the US to appoint another representative. At the 2020 uh, ICEB General Assembly, we had two resolutions that were um, passed. I've got hard copy here, too. <laughs> um... and I'm just flicking through this so our first one was uh, indeed the preservation of uh, music braille presently only available in hard copy we have um, discussed that at length so I won't go through uh, that material now I'm just going to flick through physical pages to find the next resolution which was Resolution 8, uh, the New International Manual of Braille Music Notation. I won't read the whereases, but um, this 7th General Assembly uh, of ICEB therefore resolves to investigate a collaborative project with Braille authorities and other Braille producers uh, producing entities within and external to ICEB to update the new international of braille music. Um, Through discussions with specialists in the field, it appears that there is no international body at the moment that is prepared to take on such a mammoth task. The consensus was to investigate putting together a supplement containing material not currently contained in the International Manual of Braille Music Notation. Um, So we can discuss that a little bit later this morning. Our progress on charges, as Mary just uh, said yesterday with the Constitution and Bylaws Committee, we also have charges that were agreed on and approved by the ICEB executive. Many of our charges or tasks outlined uh, in my previous reports involved areas of the Music Committee website, Uh, Entries can be updated if member member countries would like their resources in UEB added to our database. So far, our page contains a list of resources produced by member countries in Braille Music and UEB, and any decisions related to UEB that affect Braille Music will be added to this page. However, for the most part, uh, we believe that UEB does not pose any complications relating to Braille Music, I've got the website on the page, which is just iceb.org slash music.html. Each country also lists um, developments in technology in both Braille Music production, distribution and uh, rehearsal practices. And in summary, most of our member countries transcribing music use a combination of manual transcription by direct Braille input into the Duxbury Braille Translator and the use of electronic semi-automated translation using the Goodfield Music Braille Translator software. Students and professionals are often requesting materials in soft copy formats for use on refreshable Braille displays in rehearsal situations. So in conclusion, uh, now it's your turn So I invite music enthusiasts to be part of our discussion. I urge committee representatives in each country to involve their music specialists in further discussion, and I've got some pointers here that I'd be interested to to talk about, um, which we can do a little bit now, but um, I've also got Dr. Sarah Moller-Wilkins here, which Uh, So I'm going to probably come to that presentation first. It might be more sensible. But some of the areas that I thought we could talk about are how has the teaching of braille music been affected by the pandemic in your country? How do you feel about hard copy versus uh, music on a refreshable uh, braille display? Uh, In rehearsal and performing situations, Um, Working with Make Braille, we're going to come to that through the the DAISY Music Braille Project. And how has automated Braille music translation helped you? What apps or software have you trialed uh, to convert music to print? Yeah, personally, I've used used MuseScore very recently and and in very quick situations, and um, it's been really super helpful. So, we'll just have a a brief discussion now before I introduce the presentation by Dr. Sarah Molly Wilkins. Um, Over to first the Music Committee and then to our observers. Do we have any hands at the current time?
14: No hands at the moment.
20: <laughs> no one's brave enough to talk about the International Manual of Brown Music, are they? <laughs> it's
6: James here from the UK. Hey, James. Um, I'll, let, let me get the ball rolling then. I want to thank, ah, thank Roger Furman um, in particular yes. for submitting a list of all sorts of interesting symbols which are currently not in the new International Manual.
20: I echo you your, your words there, James. We have a comp- comprehensive starting point for what could be included in the supplement to the International Manual on Braille Music. Uh, in Australia, we have had a couple of meetings of a group of uh, music teachers for the vision impaired along with, along with music transcribers to come up with some... Because often there are ways in various manuals of brailing the same score or the same theory concept, and we want to find a way that makes it easier for newer transcribers and people working on the ground with our vision impaired students in the mainstream classroom um, to help them out. So I'm hoping that we can we can collate that as a, as perhaps a, a starting point in addition to Roger's document.
6: You raise a very good point there, Geordie, about theory. Um, Certainly, I know there are differences between, for example, the way the UK deals with certain theory concepts and the way you folks in Vision Australia deal with the same concept. Um, For example, um, where notes are just written above a stave in print and and it's just basically a rhythm without any pitch... Um, we use different mm. signs to you, so it would be, oh, be wonderful to document that kind of stuff, and hopefully unify.
20: It would, and I know this will cross over to uh, Sarah's presentation about the country specifications that are available for music, including theory uh, theory papers.
4: Jordi, this is Jen. Yes. Which I realized that you would know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just getting into the habit of saying my name for the people here don't know me. Um, This is a. This isn't quite what we were talking about. But as I was listening to you, just thinking about this in terms of, you know, challenges in teaching. Although this doesn't relate to sort of the last two years. But I I started taking piano lessons when I was about five. I guess sounds like you did as well. But I didn't my family, my, you know, I guess I would, my parents and my piano teacher had no idea there was such a thing as braille music or music Mm -hmm. braille. And so it was, I had to, I started learning by ear and then eventually, you know, my mom, I don't know how she found out about it. And so I, I took at the time Hadley in the U S had a course that you could take, but I had to do it on my own because my teacher was, was a fantastic piano teacher, but didn't know Braille. Didn't know anything about Braille. Was happy mm. to teach me, and so that was. I know one of the things that I struggle with. I can read it, but I'm. I'm definitely not as proficient as I'd like to be, and that, you know, obviously I can take some blame for not putting as much effort in mm. as I should. But that was. I don't know how prevalent that kind of situation is, uh, but that was the. That was sort of what I ended up experiencing.
20: Yeah, I think it's quite prevalent. I feel fortunate that I learned from. A wonderful uh, blind piano teacher, Dorothy Hamilton, uh, Dorothy Hamilton OAM now, Order of Australia, who, like you, I began learning piano from a sighted piano teacher for a couple of years until she felt that I should have some independence with regards to music reading. <clears throat> so she sent me off to Dorothy. And at the time, my father had been learning piano with me, uh, prior to that, and then when I started learning braille music, I sort of took off and left him behind for dad. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think if you haven't had the chance to learn with a fellow blind musician like that, I think it's very difficult to sort of gain those skills at a proficient um, level. So it's great that Hadley have a course available that you could access. It's a really good thing.
14: Hi, Geordie, it's uh, Stuart Lawler here. Uh, Welcome Stuart. Lovely to hear good, your to, voice. good to hear you and good to hear everybody on the call uh, today. Absolutely. Um, um, late evening here in Ireland, and I know early morning where you are. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose I just wanted to, to speak to your point about maybe the pandemic and how braille music learning has changed maybe a little bit. and. Certainly here, um, we were supporting a lot of um, virtual sessions for students during, especially during the first and second um, lockdowns here in Ireland. But I think one thing it did do is it focused the sighted music teachers a little bit more. Maybe they had a bit more time to support their learners virtually. And it certainly had them questioning a little more about tools they could access to enable them to better support their students and to enable them to learn brown music. Um, And I think if anything, what COVID has done certainly here in Ireland is given a bit more of a, uh, a bit of a kick to Braille music maybe for sighted teachers and they're a little bit more uh, engaged around it. And it's created a little bit of work for us around following up now with some of the face to face sessions, which is quite exciting. The other thing I just wanted to mention very briefly is I'm fascinated by Neil's um, note by note method as well. I think um, intervals for very young kids, and we had a conversation with a group here a couple of weeks ago, they, they really struggle to get their heads around them. And then when you tell them that they read up in one hand and down in the other, it really potentially complicates it even further. So I'm very keen to understand more about that. and Maybe, uh, like you, I'd be interested to, to follow up with Niels to see, is it an alternative that may work here for us? So um, thanks again for a great session.
20: Thanks, Stuart. It's lovely to hear from you. And I think there will be some discussion on our music committee list about note by note um, to see what we can learn about that from South Africa. And very interesting, too, to hear how Ireland found that the pandemic meant that there was a bit of a kick for Braille music. Um, Yeah, really good to hear about that. I think the same goes for uh, us in Australia, where uh, students were receiving music, as I mentioned, in soft copy and had to probably practise some of their technology skills that weren't quite as, uh, you know, quite as cohesive as they could have been before the pandemic. Do we have any other hands before we move on to the presentation from Dr Sarah wally
22: Yes. Sorry, I Nils? didn't raise my hand. It's Neil yes.
20: No problem. Um, I can say it anyway. sorry.
22: <laughs> um, Yeah, during the pandemic, we had the challenge of our visually impaired learners who couldn't follow Zoom lessons Hmm. because you explain to them use your hand like this and they cannot see what you are using so they had to do WhatsApp lessons. So they read back all their answers of theory and harmony, and I had to transcribe it first and then mark it. So we had double work, but still we've mm. got work. So uh-huh. um, yes, I was very um I was fortunate enough to have my first piano tutor as the late Miss Antoinette Boota. And she taught me the piano. Mm. We started with, it's two American sisters. I can't remember their surnames now, but we had start with piano for the blind child. Mm. That's a piano orientation book. And then there's two volumes of Read, Remember and Play. And I'm teaching here at Prince of School for the Visually Impaired. I've got music students from the Music Magnet Center here, which I also learn to play the piano um, by these books. So... All our children, (laughs) we taught by by learning them piano for the blind child. And also the cited copy of, of the Read, Remember and Play got simulated Braille in it. So the music teacher can actually learn Braille music with the student. Yes,
20: that's the ideal situation. We have a book here called Read, Sing and Play. And I know that uh, Stuart Lawler mentioned that Meve Smith's book, uh, which I've currently forgotten the name of, has just been produced in UEB as well. And I'm assuming that that is in print and Braille. Stuart, is it?
14: So yeah, it is, Jordy. It's um, the book is called uh, um, um, A Course in Braille Music, and it's. Just been made. In fact, I shouldn't say it's because it, it, it is available in UEB. Although we are finishing the proofing, so uh, mm-hmm. I won't say it's available just yet for <laughs> okay. general consumption. On
12: our website, quite yet. Though. But
14: yeah, it it is uh, just about ready. The book was written initially in two thousand and eight, so we produced the UEB version this year. So Fantastic.
22: what I did now, I did now. Um, I did piano for the blind child, and I'm now busy with read, remember, and play. To put yeah. it put it also in Daxbury um, also in Ueb because it was pre-Ueb um, but there's not oh, yeah. like, not too much um words but the music I'm now also putting it uh, I start inserting it in Braille so that I can have mm-hmm. my own copies for for future reference as well.
20: That's fantastic. and we couldn't have got you the electronic version if it was available from the US, but, yeah. Uh, um, it's
9: Cathy Reeson, Sorry, yep. Cathy Reeson here from um, Australia as a Hi, retired transcriber who uh, did quite a lot of music. I'm a non-musician transcribing music, I have to add, Theory was always the difficult one, I think, because a lot of theory is very visual in its how it's written, mm-hmm. and so when you're writing up theory stuff for students, I found the need to do a lot, a lot more explanation of mm. going between what the print says and what it, what it really means in braille, because often there. Um, there are concepts that students haven't learnt in it in the braille, which are presented in the print. And you've got to sort of really um do it, you know, sort of going through some of our standard theory books, which in Australia we tend to use the Dulcie Holland series. Um, That's you know, sort theory. of going through from, you know, sort of. And that's what teachers expect students to use. You've you've really got to doing a braille copy. You've actually almost have to edit it to suit the braille student.
20: You do a very and, good job at that. I've seen you work.
9: <laughs> and, and some of the and and of course, so you know, sort of be really good to standardise how to show some of those things across across things. As uh, James said, you know, sort of. Um when do we show um chords as the note by note method, or when do we show it as yes. intervals, depending on the context of what is being taught at the time. Yes.
4: Jordi, I just in the interest of time, I wanted, yep. I don't know how long um, Dr. Sarah Morley Wilkins' presentation is, but I just yep. want it's after 6:30. Thank so
20: thank you very much. Yes. I don't what want to cut we- off
4: the discussion. It's it's great. Not I just at all.
20: Sarah's presentation will run for 10 minutes so what we might do is oh, okay okay is we're fine then um, it, what we might do is hear that presentation now and then open up the discussion to everyone to carry on with a discussion around the Make Braille project or any other topics that have been raised digitization of braille music i believe we still have Katie with us uh music in the pandemic the international manual on braille music anything that is a burning uh, thought or query that we have this audience that we can um, we can speak to. So, could we play the um, presentation by Dr. Sarah Molly Wilkins, who is the um, project project lead of the uh, Daisy Music Braille Project and the Make Braille uh, software? So, really excited to hear from Sarah.
14: Thank you. is everybody able to see the uh, video at least now yes anyone okay yes yes thank you
23: hello everyone i'm dr sarah morley wilkins the project manager and user experience consultant for the daisy music braille project thank you geordie and ICEB, for the invitation to join you today to talk about how our project is helping to secure the future of music braille in the face of declining expertise and limitations of software and file formats. I'd like to thank many of you for your active participation in the project so far. Our international collaboration has brought about significant improvements in the music braille field, which could not have been achieved in isolation. And thanks also to our sector funders who have helped make all this possible. By way of overview of this presentation, Our vision is that musicians who read braille enjoy timely and affordable access to increased numbers of accurate music braille scores in hard copy and digital formats produced by effective and reliable conversion tools. Our mission is that through a range of strategic interventions collected through sector research, we help to secure the future of music braille production and use. I'd like to tell you today about the current status of each of our strategic interventions delivering against the sector requirements we gathered and prioritised at the start of the project, and then talk a little about future opportunities. One, automated music braille production, make braille. Through collaboration, we're achieving greater automation for music braille production through a conversion tool, primarily aimed at braille libraries and production houses. We've supported two years of development of make braille from DZB Leeson, which is a professional automated and online conversion tool which takes well marked up music xml files or scanned print scores as capella files. applies country specific codes formatting and braille rules and emails back braille ready files for embossing or reading on a braille display. Our two year development period is now finished and DZB Leeson will be contacting braille libraries about licenses for the online tool shortly. We thank all testers for supplying their country requirements and testing new functionality, so that MakeBraille could cater for international use. DZB Leeson is continuing to make improvements, so please do keep sending your feedback to the make braille support email. Two, interactive end-user tool, say oh my Braille with MuseScore. We also want blind musicians themselves to be able to obtain create, explore, learn and convert files for their own use in a low cost solution. We're supporting two years development of a free interactive end user music braille tool with Sayo My Braille SMB and MuseScore to create a free fully accessible music notation editing tool with full music braille support and which caters for international use smb is being continually improved to include powerful music braille functionality and uses the Liblouis library it provides regular releases for use and testing and we have an online webinar recording which demonstrates the tool the free mainstream music notation software musescore continues to implement accessibility features and has just published a tutorial for us on screen reader accessibility with musescore 3 which will be very helpful for end users and transcribers alike. Three, improved file format standards and publishing practice. We wish to influence industry standard file formats and publishing practice to secure better braille conversions. In recent years, we've proposed improvements to W3C for music XML so that it now includes more of the right tags needed for effective music braille conversions. We've also worked with music notation tools which output music XML, such as MuseScore and Sibelius, so they include the tags we need for conversions into Music Braille. And we've developed engraving guidelines so music setters can create born accessible scores containing the right structure and tags we need for our conversions. We're also planning an interactive webinar for music publishers on accessible music publishing to see if they could incorporate our engraving guidelines in their music setting workflow. This would mean that they could create high quality music XML files to give to trusted Braille production houses, which could be very efficiently converted into music Braille. Four, Music Braille Production Network. We're piloting a way in which blindness agencies can procure and produce music Braille between each other to meet local demand through the development of a music braille production network excuse me (coughs) it's already proving effective for sourcing braille scores between agencies and we continue to find ways to make the process more efficient we're midway through a score trial where producers in the network have all converted the same two scores to a specific user's job request for review by blind musicians and transcribers We're looking for ways in which agencies can create scores more efficiently for international use and how we can best advise end users to read scores produced in other countries. Five, metadata for music braille. We would like to make it easier for people to find and retrieve music braille scores in online collections by improving the metadata of those files. We formed a working group of online collections, ABC, NLS, Bookshare and Onthe to review existing metadata used in collections of Music Braille and together we will be proposing a harmonisation of fields which could be used in future. We will shortly share our latest proposals widely for comment. Six, teaching and learning of Music Braille. We would love to be able to signpost quality resources for the teaching and learning of Music Braille which are currently scattered across different agencies and education settings, and are not always easily shareable. The collation of this reference list is underway and suggestions of the most helpful resources in your different countries would be welcomed. So the future. While Star strategic interventions have undoubtedly helped to secure the future of music braille production and use at a critical time, we believe there are still opportunities to exploit in future beyond our project period, which ends in December 22. We're advising agencies to liaise with us now to plan how the sector can capitalise on and build on the developments established in our DAISY project, so that people can increasingly get their hands on Braille Music scores more easily. Our recommendations include to continue testing and giving feedback to the tool developers, e.g. Make Braille, MuseScore and SMB in particular, so that sector requirements can continue to be built in. To recruit recruit and retain music braille experts for marking up source files, transcription, proofreading and teaching purposes, as they will always be needed no matter how good the tools are. To develop music braille teaching and learning resources for teachers and musicians, ideally signposted in centralized locations and translated into key languages so they can be easily found and used internationally to further encourage, maybe even demand the creation of high quality source files from music notation tools, music publishers and engravers, making them ready for efficient and accurate conversion into accessible formats, including music braille. To progress our proposed metadata harmonization for music braille resources created and stored in online collections, making the search and retrieval of existing scores more effective to maintain the sector networks we've created, the Music Braille Production Network for international production purposes as well as the active forum we've established for professional networking, collaboration and information exchange in this niche field. Producers should incorporate our findings for the efficient international production of music scores and in supporting end users in reading scores created in other countries. Music Braille should be trialled on the newest refreshable Braille displays and specify any special formatting required from the conversion tools. And finally, we should engage and influence the latest advantages in artificial intelligence, specifically around context recognition during scanning, file import and conversion. And the vital groundwork undertaken in our project will be invaluable in this endeavor. In closing, we believe our project has made not only positive developments in the sector, but has also instilled a sense of momentum and engagement, which will continue as agencies further progress these opportunities. So we can all be confident about the future of Music Braille for young and adult musicians worldwide. Thank you so much for listening. And you can find out more about the project or join our mailing list at www.daisy.org forward slash music Braille or email us at musicrail at daisy.org. I've provided a list of useful links from my presentation, which I'm sure will be made available afterwards. I look forward to staying in
20: touch. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah Morley-Wilkins for that excellent presentation um, and welcome today. It's really, really cool to have you here. Hello. I'm very excited to be here, although it's nearly midnight, so um, uh, thank you all for
23: listening to a pre-recorded presentation because I wasn't confident I could deliver that eloquently at this time of night.
20: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sort of experiencing the reverse of that being, um, you know, at 6am earlier on. (laughs) I had two queries for you before we open up to everyone. Mm -hmm. One is, is it possible for us to... um, have access to the country specifications provided uh, by each country, so that we know uh, what we're dealing with. I know that Australia has a music addendum published, and the UK has guidelines published. Is that something that uh, the Music Braille Project will make available? We really hoped we would be able to do that.
23: Mm. We we spent two years during the development of Make Braille collecting the country requirements but it was very piecemeal. So we would send out messages every fortnight to say, okay, here are some very precise uh, situations. What do you each do in your own country? Okay, so similarity here and not here. Um, Some of that has been documented quite neatly, ready to share. Other parts of that have been included in the programming code, uh, which are not so easy to get at. Mm -hmm. So there are things that we can share. And certainly, the development of SMB also needs that data, uh, and we don't want to have to do it all again. So, yes, I think there will be there will be something we'll be able to share during the perhaps next six months a year, uh, which should make it easier for your addendum. Yeah, Excellent.
20: that's really good to know. And I personally am really interested in trialing SMB. I haven't quite had the time to do it yet, but. Uh, when this conference is over, that'll give me some more headspace to yes. play with things again. <laughs> uh, now, if I open up the discussion then to anyone who wishes to raise their hand, does anyone have a question or comment for Sarah about music automation and what's been going on?
7: Yes, Geordie.
20: We have Moya here with her hand raised. Uh, Moya, yes. hello, our committee representative from New Zealand. Lovely to hear from you. Thank you, Geordie,
8: and hello, everybody. Um, I'd like to praise the DAISY um, project. It's really marvellous. I usually use Sharp Eye, good, um, Lime and GoodFeel process to get a skeleton before I do a transcription. I use the notes and do all the donkey work <laughs> with the automation. And I've just changed laptop. Um, I don't have the Goodfield program activated yet. And I've used Salmay several times and it's wonderful it's so easy very quick and it's given a really good result so Yay. i use mm, marvellous <laughs> i use Muse score all the time myself and um in music braille but it's the salmé process is really very good so well done Thank i you. think that's who and um Peter Jonas perhaps is that Yes.
23: and the most exciting thing I think really is the fact that by the end of this calendar year MuseScore and SMB will work together so blind musicians and transcribers and teachers will be able to create scores in any way they want explore it in any way they want and output it in any way they want and that for me is going to be one of the most powerful changes for the sector I think.
8: And, and I see that from MuseScore we will soon be able to um, directly export a BRF. Is that correct? Yeah, there, that'll yeah. be through SMB. Yes, marvellous.
23: Yeah. And it'll all be free. I know, and it's it's lovely
20: software. Thank you for <laughs> your thank feedback.
23: You. Really pretty. I'll pass that on. Do,
20: thank that is very you. very <laughs> exciting. <laughs> I'm really excited about this.
23: We have a
22: question from Niels. Niels. I'm oh, sorry, yes. <laughs> no, no, that's um, great to hear from you. Uh, yes, um, I want to get in touch with the DAISY developers mm-hmm. because it's a country-specific thing, the note-by-note <laughs> and bar-over-bar methods we're using in South Africa. Um, so, yes, I think I must get in touch with the developers
23: Niels, if you want to contact me at um musicbraille at daisy.org. Yes. I'll I'll, yes. I'll liaise with you to get the information to the right people.
22: Okay, thank you very much. Because I All think right. this is the first that we can start digitizing music. Mm. I
23: think I think with that muscle and SMB, you will find that very powerful.
22: Mm.
6: Yeah. It's James Bowden here. Um, James. Niels, I th- am I right in thinking the note-by-note method is documented in the Braille music book from Barna 2015?
22: Uh, yes, I presume so, yes, because I have a copy of it on my computer. Uh, I also use my lose my computer so i had to upgrade now to laptop <laughs> as well <laughs> yeah
6: so um, this is this is one thing which is not in the new international manual but is yeah. in the barna book
22: okay yeah yeah thanks jane yeah.
6: and i can assure you niels that bar over bar is definitely supported in both thanks. make braille and the smb software which is great news oh it's wonderful
20: uh, do we have any further questions, comments from uh, other members of our group here today?
24: Yes, there is, from Kakit. Hi, I'm Kakit uh, from Canada.
20: Kakit, I to hear your voice. <laughs> That's the first time I've heard your voice too. <laughs> uh,
24: thank you, um, Sarah, for for, for the Braille, uh testing uh, opportunity. Uh, I've used that quite a bit. And I find it actually very interesting, extremely interesting. Especially when I, I, I'm first of all I'm I'm very new to the whole braille thing, and uh, uh, as a transcriber, I've only been a few years. I'm a very new transcriber, uh, and so we we are in CNIB. We are uh, basically uh, producing um, transcriptions for our clients, and I noticed that. With the MIC braille, I'm still struck. What I'm still struggling is uh, to really somehow find a very clean um, scan that goes into the mm-hmm. uh, the capella uh, that would actually produce. Uh, uh, because I, I I think that in in capella scan, you know, I I still have a lot of questions. I just wonder is is there some help that we could get from uh, from because I mean before uh, Matthias was was great. I've had a few sessions with him, yeah. uh, and he you know he really guided me through uh, the using of the program and everything and how to scan something more more complex. I mean yeah. last time I tr- I tried a, a a music that changed uh, time signature every bar, and I find that. It went into the scan and 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 it was kind of quite difficult to to adjust afterwards because I'm mean, the 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 bar for a bar the bar lines are all over the place and and i i I just technically you know don't know how to how to cope with that i mean is is there any any help that you could maybe suggest and and
23: well i can I can talk to matthias again and it might be that capella might be able to help in this instance. Um, because of course, Capella is a separate program from Make Braille um, and that's been continually improved. So if there's stuff we need to talk to them about, we should give them some feedback. So let me let me talk to Matthias um, and get back to you, Car Kit. How's that?
24: Right, right. That's great. And and I, I heard Maria just mentioning that you know she was using uh, 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 Simi uh, the, the uh, program. And mm. what exactly? Where do I get that program?
23: Uh, you can. Let me read out the email. Because
24: um, I, I thought that program was was for uh, uh, Braille readers.
23: It It is, but you could also use it as a teacher or a transcriber. Um, it's not so automated as Make Braille. So with, say, My Braille, you have a lot of control about what it's doing. So you can set it up for your preferences. Um and if you want to adjust certain things you can do um but so with, con-
24: is, sorry is, is it a program that for, for sighted people also i mean you can yeah. you can you can see the the, yeah. the dots the symbol, and, and 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 change from there or do you, you see the music to, to, you
23: see you see the music and the braille but you can't it's you can't dynamically change the braille okay well not yet anyway the yeah. other thing to say is it's only uh, nearly a year and a bit old so mm. i am hugely impressed by the speed and accuracy and quality of what the team produces at say right. i don't think i've ever seen such uh development so it is absolutely possible that if we continue to give them feedback they will be able to gradually incorporate lots of these requirements in but if you want to um contact them um Uh, Geordie, is there any way of circulating the transcript and my useful links after the
20: session? I would say that the um, organisers of conference, Jen Golden, uh, I'm sure would be able to circulate those to to delegates, yeah.
15: Thanks. Thank you to
23: Jen in advance. But the SAOMI support email, which is easy, I think, to read out, is support at Mm sayomicentre.org
6: can you guys reason, hear me you spell
20: that yes nope. Jen. Jen you're, you're audible
4: yeah sorry I just wanted to say yes didn't mean to interrupt I just wanted to yes we no, will no. um make this information um available if
23: thanks Jen
4: so beautiful. sorry Thank about you. that
23: so I'll spell That's that nice. again it's support at and then say my center is s-a-o-m-a-i-c-e-n-t-e-r spelled the American way dot org mm-hmm. Um, but from the Daisy webpage, you'll find uh, direct links to the videos, the tutorials, the demos of SMB and MuseScore, and both of those then have links to the, the products. Okay. So my my um question really for you all in relation to what Geordie was talking about is is collating teaching and learning resources.
20: Because I, I know comment on this. Yeah. <laughs> I know <laughs> I you've done
23: do. a nice piece of work looking at UEB and Music Rail. And mm. I'm particularly interested in where are the best teaching and learning resources in each country and how much of that could be translatable and shareable? Um, or how much of it is online, how much of it could be done distance learning.
15: Um mm.
23: I may run out of time to do this this piece of work, but it's something that we could start in the Daisy Project, but potentially could be um, carried on somewhere else.
4: And if I sorry to interrupt again, um, in the absence of Judy, I just wanted to point out it's it's six fifty five or something fifty five or something twenty five, depending on where you are. And so I'm wondering, and I know you maybe said this, but maybe a and Jordy, I'm going to hand it over to you just to close this the music committee time before I talk again, but maybe it would be good to, did would it make sense to repeat where people can, um, how they can provide that information?
20: Yes, that would be great. And also that we do have a, a small list at the uh, music committee webpage at iceb.org slash Um However, yeah, Sarah, if you wanted to... Um, Repeat your details so that people can yeah. contact you with further information about music Thank you. online. Thanks.
23: So m- to contact me by email, it's musicbraille or one word at daisy.org. And if you if you Google even the Daisy Music Braille project, you will find our landing page, which is www.daisy.org forward slash music-braille.
20: Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for that presentation and that discussion, it's really interesting, and I'm sure you'll have many of us uh, contacting you to be more involved and having a look at Make Braille as well as the Salami project. Um, and I do encourage people to uh, find the music specialists in your country, Braille music specialists, and have them um, request to observe the ICEB Music Braille Committee's work, because it would be lovely to have more dialogue in that forum. But, I look forward to um, further discussions into the future. Thank you very much, everyone, for participating today. And it is also lovely to hear some voices of my committee that I haven't heard before. (laughs) Thank you very much. Over to Jen.
4: Well, thank you, Jordy, and Dr. Shara Morley Wilkins, and Katie, Katie Rada. I don't know if you're still here, but thank you to all of you, and and to everyone who participated in this this great discussion. It's something that really does need to happen, and it's it's so awesome when we can kind of get together. Uh, well, you know, it would be you know better if we could get together in person, but this is actually great that we can have so many people from around the world just um talking about this issue and and getting the word out about different things so thank you all very much i i really enjoyed it found it fascinating um so we this brings us to the end of uh, day two and my braille display has heard that and decided that it's it's done for now so that's all right um so before we close i just i have another little can con moment which and natalie i i don't mean to put you on the spot. So if, if you're not available to do this, that's totally fine. I didn't check with you first, but we have a little snippet about how Braille uh, first came to North America uh, via Quebec. So Natalie, if you would like to take a minute to explain that, that would be uh, fantastic. And then we'll
11: uh, yes, I'll send absolutely. us off. Yes, absolutely. So... Uh, we mentioned yesterday that Canada, of course, has two official languages, English and French, and in Quebec, um, we're predominantly French speaking. Um, and because of that, Braille actually arrived in Canada quite early because the what's now known as the INLB, the Institut Nazareth de Louis Bray, um, which is one of our rehab agencies here in Quebec, um, when they first opened as a school for the blind, um, they, of course, had lots of direct, direct links to the school for the blind in Paris um, that Louis Braille had attended as a student. And so they, um, they, I think they received their first Braille book back in the 1860s. Um, and if you are curious to know more about the history of braille in Canada, not just braille, but blindness, as who wouldn't be as as you all should be. Um, <laughs> um, there's a great book um, called Journey to Independence by Euclid Heery. I believe that's, that's a great a full title. Yes. And it's a great resource. Um, Fairly certain it is on Bookshare as well. Um, And
4: that is where I learned that little fact there you have it so um with that that seems like a great way to close for today so again thank you to everyone for attending and and for participating in the discussion and we look forward to seeing you all again tomorrow at the same time uh utc so that's me being lazy and not quite getting all the time zones sorted out. 2000 UTC, same Zoom link. And we will see you tomorrow. We will be talking about um, a number of different things, including code maintenance and um, other, other fascinating topics. So we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Or good night. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good something.
22: Goodbye.
4: Goodbye, that too. Bye, Bye. Bye.
18: Bye. everyone. One o one am so I'm going to sleep now. (laughs) Night-night. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.
0: Goodbye. Well, there you go. Good something to everybody uh, listening on the live stream. Uh, It's a good morning from the UK where it is, I think, um, one minute past midnight. There you go. Uh, And um, in the US, that would be... Uh, seven, one minute past seven, and indeed one minute past seven in Canada. This is Matthew Horspool. You have been listening to live coverage of the 2022 midterm executive committee meeting of the International Council on English Braille. And uh, what a wonderful day it was with a lot of stuff uh, packed into that session. Um, (laughs) Almost too much to remember. Uh, So I'm going to turn it over to I don't know who's still here. We have um, Kim Kilpatrick and Ashley Shaw. One or both may still be here.
1: I'm still here. I don't know.
0: There we go. And I think I think Ashley's still here as well. Well, Well, that's (laughs) wonderful. You were you 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 stayed awake. I mean, it wasn't hard to fall asleep. It wasn't hard to stay awake, was it? Um, you know, it it was a it was a fabulous session. Um, a lot packed in though, wasn't there?
2: Oh my goodness, so much so much going on, and and just like such a my you know my comments from that second half about music is just that like it's apparently an exciting time in the world for music braille. Um, it's just so kind of, I don't know if it's always like this, <laughs> it's... every time my CV gets together and every time kind of the, the music rail folks come out to come out to play. But it's good to hear how many exciting developments there are in everybody's, uh, in everybody's country.
0: Isn't it just, wow. I mean, 2020 was exciting because 2020, Daisy had got its money and it was starting to work out how it was going to spend it. And I think it had just about decided in 2020 how it was going to spend it. And we sort of looked at it and we went, wow, that'd be amazing when it happens. And now it's happening.
2: Yeah, yeah. I remember um, one of the things I remember aside from the, um, the DAISY Music Braille Project, which I remember being really excited about, was finding out about some of that. If we remember way back to the beginning of that second half of, of today's meeting, um, the, the first time I heard about the NLS uh, digitization efforts was... I can't even remember how many years ago, but it was there was a Smithsonian Magazine article about it, and I guess they had gone in and like you know taken some pictures and done all these other things, and they were showing off kind of what what types of, of tech they were using at NLS and how their digitization was going. And I was I remember thinking, oh my goodness, like that's uh, that's amazing that you know that, that we have the technology to do that. I'd never learned about things like um, optical braille recognition before. Um, And then just all of the all of the findings that came out of that initial for the for the Daisy uh, Music Braille Project, all of those findings from their from their sector search and how quickly really they were able to to mobilize and develop their strategic interventions is is really impressive.
0: Mm. So I had heard of optical braille recognition and I just thought it was some concept, you know, I mean, I heard about it years ago. And then I heard nothing more about it and I thought, oh, well, it was probably a nice idea that somebody had and it's kind of, you know, died a death and <laughs> and and to, to actually hear, I mean, it sadly has died a death now, but except it's still being used by NLS and, you know, to hear about such an amazing amount of work that's been done, you know, one of the questions that I really wanted to ask and I didn't dare ask it was, um, once you've finished digitising all your stuff, will you start digitising some of ours?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because there isn't a clear answer about we did ask about Marrakesh. and I mean, there isn't a clear answer about that she didn't know. So that's hopefully we will get access. The thing that struck me, I mean, aside from what struck you, is also the differences in how people do things, you know, when they were talking about the note by note versus bar by bar. And I guess we kind of did talk about it when you were saying, Matthew, before about Getting the music you want, the way you want it to be, mm. and um, but I it never even occurred to me. I thought if you know braille music, you know it, and it's it's not going to be different. But it obviously it obviously is different. And again, I guess that's what we think sometimes about you know our language or different different things. Oh, everyone's going to know the same thing, but obviously not necessarily. Like not that they wouldn't be able to read the music, but it it could be quite different. And I was surprised a little bit by that. I didn't know that. So that was interesting to me.
0: Yeah, the, the notes are the same. It's how you format the notes that is different. And then for things like bar by bar, it's, you know, how do you say when one bar starts, as you know, ends and the next yeah. bar starts, and when one part within a bar ends and the next part starts. Do you have much experience, actually of reading bar by bar music?
2: So I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I I um, I think that the majority. It's, so it depends on. Do you do either of you know when some of the changes were made? Um, uh,
21: not the, off do, the I top of know. my head.
0: I think it was uh, after the Second World War. Um, I mean, that's not saying okay. much. I mean, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, possibly right. slightly later than that. But I mean, certainly by the time I was learning Braille music, and that was in the nineties, <laughs> uh, we were very much over, on bar over bar.
2: Okay, so I don't think I've seen much of the bar by bar, but it might have been I might have seen some because what I remember being confused by is, I think in that some of those older styles of formatting, they also, um, uh, I think, ran the intervals in a different direction. So um, there was a certain point in time where they changed. I think like whether that
0: quite intervals possibly, were up or low, oh, but they might have ran them styles. all in a uniform direction. So they might have all ran up or all ran right. down oh, rather than okay. down in one yeah. hand and up in the other.
1: Yeah, I've never that's seen that's what I remember
2: I, being I confused think. and just like completely baffled by it was seeing a very old um, piece of music braille and you know assuming that I was just completely um, you know crazy because I was I was a newer uh, a newer student of music braille and it turned out it wasn't me it was assuming that um, you were supposed to apparently check the date <laughs> yeah. someone told me <laughs> when it was produced so I imagine it would have been the same if I were looking at you know if I were looking at the um,
1: or um, note bar by bar. note like i'd like to see yeah. note by note I'd i think that would be interesting i do not know what that would be like um i don't know either I'm i was trying to get my it. mind around that and uh, i i guess no intervals right i guess you would say quarter note this and this other one beside it if it was a chord or something i'm not
0: sure well You see, this is what interests me because is it note by note, as in literally note by note, or is it the note of one hand and then the note of the other hand? In which case, there might still be intervals. If you've got two notes in the right hand and two notes in the left hand, you might have right hand plus its interval and left hand plus its interval, but written right next to each other rather than Mm. underneath each other or after a bar or so.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't either. No, but it would be really interesting to see different styles and then test them with musicians to say, what do you prefer? Like, what do you like? Mm -hmm. What's easier for you? What's faster?
2: Well, Um, the other element that comes in here, too, is we were talking about this earlier, um, which is when you learn music braille in your music career. So if you learned it, um, and it was good to hear some of the folks at the meeting talking about this issue. Did you learn it at the beginning of your musical education? Or did you, you know... um, did you look, pick it up later on after you'd already had some musical education? Or I'm sure this does happen in certain situations. If you are a sighted musician and you lose your sight and you decide to move from print music to mm-hmm. music braille, um, any of those situations are going to be, and where that would affect this situation, I'm thinking is your familiarity with intervals and your comfort level with intervals and perhaps mm-hmm. your preference. To and see. I'm thinking I would rather see everything the way, it, you know, the way I'm used to it because mm-hmm. I kind of think in you know, chords, if it's something that has chords. Um, And so I would rather see all of that together. Um, But I'm imagining that if you're, you know, if you're new to both music and Braille, and you're not used to thinking in intervals, um, as, um, as the gentleman gentleman was describing, then students might have difficulty having to use their working memory to think about through think through intervals and the Braille system at the same
20: time.
1: Yeah. And it kind of comes back to, you have to learn both ways. Like it was a long time before I even understood about lines and spaces. And I went to music camp, like sighted music camp and they were all sight reading and they were talking about this below the clef and this, and I was playing clarinet in this group and they, I, I didn't understand. I didn't know what it was because I would think fourth octave C, fifth octave C. So again, it's like educating everybody so that everybody understands how to communicate mm. with each other you know like what what each other knows I found it really interesting too that Jordi said uh, she got uh, she had a blind music teacher pretty early on right and I think that would have helped me in a lot of ways in that the brown music would have seemed so normal that I would have felt very comfortable with it like I'm not oh, blaming yeah. I'm not blaming the <laughs> fact that I'm bad at Braille music. Because even Jen said the same thing she started and she didn't know and her mom didn't know. Nobody knew about it. But I think if I'd had a blind um music teacher that just read Braille music, then I would have just read it because I mean I read Braille naturally. Why wouldn't I have taken to mm. that? I don't know.
2: Well the other thing that would have been easier in that case is are things like theory lessons. Um, yeah. which were always oh, really yes. difficult to that describe was a for nightmare. the same <laughs> Yeah, if you're talking about the staff and you're talking about, like, I don't know, yeah, other elements that are part of um, print music. Um, and people and had to transcribe. I don't know the about theory.
1: you, Ashley, if you could do it on the computer, but I'm pre-computer days when I was doing theory, a lot of theory and. People had to write it out for me. I had to give them. I had to braille everything, and then I had to read it to people, and they had to write it. Yeah,
2: I've I've done that a couple ways, and like I'm. That's why I was so um, excited to hear about like some of the um, is it um, news score and like some of the um, kind of accessibility developments. Mm, SMB, yeah, because my memory is of doing two things. The one is playing the piano while a scribe sat next to me and wrote at exams.
1: Oh, that would have been better. Um, I would have liked that. that, that one better than, we used? Than um, I don't out. know if it
2: was orthodox, but they honestly just didn't know how to provide an accommodation. No. So because um, I was like, well, I can Braille it. We didn't have anybody to kind of reverse transcribe from the Braille. So we did it that way. Um, the other thing that I used to do, which was really wild, was um, although I'm sure others have done it as well. Um, I used MIDI software and a keyboard um, wired to a computer um a music like a piano um, mm. synth keyboard wired to a computer. Um and then you would have to kind of use a headset and use a metronome and be very, very um I would you'd have to re-record until you had everything exactly Ooh. right. Exactly. And then the, quantize um, it. You'd... Yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Ooh. Yeah. So I don't this might be familiar to other I'm too I'm too old for people, that. But... <laughs> I was
1: I was brailing it out and reading. I felt like one of those, what was that? Those movies where famous musicians well not that my pieces were any good but would dictate to other people and saying did you write that did you write the rest did you put this here did you write it you know because also you didn't know if the person writing it would do what you wanted no. and sometimes no. they'd be writing it and think oh you got that really wrong but they had to write what you what you told them mm. to. <laughs>
0: well and sometimes <laughs> they wouldn't interpret it properly because if you're talking yeah. about fourth octave season fifth yeah. octave season they just don't you know, staff notation is not like that. No. So, how do you dictate that in a way that they understand? So, you have to have someone that understands Braille music and stave notation, so that they can yeah. translate what it is that you're saying.
1: None of the people I knew I had did know
0: Braille mm. music.
2: So well, they did not now that me. I now that I think about it, some of the I think that's a similar method they use when doing the reverse, like when um, you have uh, a blind person transcribing. Uh, music braille and um, a sighted person reading the printed music so I think that there are um, dictation systems or I know that there are dictation systems that they use to make sure that they're speaking the same terminology and also like in that case providing things in the correct order based on how they get laid out in music braille for sure but I mean we didn't load that when we did our exams did we
1: no (laughs) No. there would be a different order to later about that no, and you don't know what to tell people. You're just reading it back the way you write it in Braille. And you're right, Matthew. The person might not understand it. You wouldn't understand what to say either, mm. like how to tell them, you know. Yeah.
0: I find it interesting that we're spending a lot of time talking about the piano. Um, and I think that definitely happens over here. I I am a singer. That is what I do. I mean, I can play the piano if I really have to, but... I'm not a piano player. I'm not any. You know, I I I'm a, a lay clerk at Coventry Cathedral. I sing tenor. That's what I do. And yet, I when I was going to learn Braille music, I had to learn Braille music for the piano because it was basically the only Braille music teaching book that existed at the time.
2: Hmm. That doesn't yeah. entirely surprise me because um, I mean I know here when people enter like music higher ed. Um, if you're a vocal student, you also need to have um, like a certain level of piano proficiency. Uh, so maybe there, there was an assumption made that, like when they when they created some of these teaching and learning resources, maybe there was an assumption made that people had basic enough piano proficiency to learn. But it does raise that kind of important point about if we're gathering together teaching and learning resources, you know, how do we kind of support the learning for other instruments? Uh. Um, or for voice for for those students?
0: I mean, not least for voice, because a lot of the arguments against braille music don't stack up when you're dealing with voice. I mean, look, I'm not competent enough to be able to actually make it work. But, you know, theoretically, you know, they say, oh, well, you can't read braille music and perform it at the same time. And that's true for basically everything except voice, where theoretically you could. And I feel like if there was a real, you know, emphasis on teaching braille music for voice I feel like actually we would overcome a lot of these problems
1: I think so and and I mean I think we all sang in choirs like I sang in choirs and um and I, I would have I would braille out lyrics
0: mm, you yeah know,
1: but I never would think of brailing out the notes
0: yeah all the time. I mean, I, I can't sight-read braille music at all. And yet, exactly the same as you, you know, we'll be presented with an unfamiliar hymn on a Sunday morning and I'll have it in braille and I'll just be able to read the braille and sing the words and do it very, very fluently and not worry at all about mm-hmm. the fact that I've never sung them before.
2: Well, and even if you are not um, are not sight-singing, uh, it's, it's still much, much easier to learn. So if you're by yourself and you're rehearsing your part, um, it's much easier to memorize if you can read the music, you know, sing the passage a few times. Now you've got that passage, move on to the next mm. few hours. Yeah. It's so much easier than, I mean, yeah. does anyone remember sitting with like cassette players? and, yes. and rewind,
1: rewind, oh, gosh. rewind, rewind, yeah. rewind,
3: <laughs>
1: yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And slow it down sometimes, like to see if you could, That would go an octave (laughs) roll. You're trying
2: to get... You lose your pitch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, you're trying to get it, trying to get the words or the the melody as best you could. Yeah, for sure. I
0: I remember recording rehearsals so that I could go back and listen to them and getting so exasperated because the diction just wasn't good enough. And so literally (sighs) on one, you know, you'd sing it sort of two or three times, right? And on one take, literally just leaning into the microphone and going, God, is up... Just so you could get that, you know, I could hear yep. what the words oh, were because otherwise yeah. it was never going to come across.
1: No, 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 <laughs> it's 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 true. And I mean, you also have to know that you're not going to be you're not going to know when to start. You're not going to be cued by the conductor. So we're having to keep track of all of these bits, right? Mm. The li- fewer bits you have to keep track of, the better, right? The the music and the, the lyrics and so yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, Matthew. It's a, learning to read I wish I knew braille music for singing I really wish that I just feel
0: like it's the uh, the easiest bit of braille music you could learn because it's always going to be one part well I say it's always going to be one part and then you get um tenor parts with divisi you know where you've got tenor one and tenor two and then you have the intervals problem all over again are the intervals reading up or are they reading down you know you're reading the first tenor plus the interval or the second tenor plus the interval
2: yeah, how does that work in voice? Because I've never, um, I don't think I've ever... No, I've never seen it. It's never been know. split like that. And I, I'm used to like, well, if it's the right hand, it's this. And if it's, you know, the left hand, it's this. The flute doesn't play intervals. So, yeah, no. so if it's,
0: <laughs> if it's short score and it's straightforward, right? So if it's soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and there's no splits, then you have the soprano and the alto so that the intervals read downwards so you have the soprano part with with alto intervals and you have the bass part with tenor intervals so the same as the piano they read up in the lower parts and down in the upper parts so i suppose actually thinking about it if there was a split they would just continue to read down i mean if it was significant i mean if you were if you were doing something for double choir you would write choir one and then choir two or you know you'd, you'd write all eight parts separately or something but say there's a piece of music where predominantly it's in four parts but you know every so often there's a split tenor or you know maybe splits for two or three notes so I suppose actually yeah you'd you'd read the second Well, you'd read the bass part and then have two intervals above that, I guess. Oh,
1: I'd only want my part. I think I'm with you, Matthew, when you said you just want your own part there.
0: I mean, I do want my own part. The problem with splits like that is that you could end up on either side. So, So, you know, in the cathedral, I mean, I predominantly sing tenor one. But if there was a shortage of tenor twos... Uh, for one Sunday for some reason you know uh, th- one of the tenors was was sick or something you know I would be I mean I'm never asked to go over because you know they're quite happy to send somebody else over but I'd like to be able to be asked to go over <laughs>
3: right
2: and then right, read the right.
0: other tenor part especially if it's a very small split you know maybe only split for two or three notes
2: yeah I, would, I always loved doing second soprano so um if i you know <laughs> if i had the yeah. opportunity i always volunteered
1: but um, how would you like, read you both lyrics and the music like where would they be in relation to each other two like
0: lyrics above certainly in the okay. uk i'd be interested in what it's like in canada lyrics okay. and then below the lyrics and indented by two spaces is the music
2: okay that is how I've seen it. Um so either I was um either I was <laughs> reading the no. material that we were sent from the UK or um No, I I but I,
1: I just never had somewhere. it. I would braille out my own lyrics and if it was lyrics in a different language I didn't understand, I'd do it phon- phonetically for mm-hmm. myself, you know, because mm-hmm. I didn't know I just did it my own little makeshift uh cheat sheets of things.
2: So yeah. Well, another another when you're talking about lyrics, it's making me think of another kind of um, kind of pro point for um, vocal students learning music Braille right away, which is um, if you're you don't often have the opportunity to hear a recording of just your part. Yeah. Um, Someone could make one for you and all that sort of thing. But often people would be like, well, here's a recording of some other choir performing this. Yeah. Um, and you're not going to pick out, like, it's hard to pick up the lyrics that way. No, you can't. Um, You don't really sound, it was like you were saying, Matthew, with your recordings from rehearsal. It doesn't really, it's hard sometimes to pick Mm. out the the lyrics, but it's also hard to
1: tell which part is doing what No, you can't. You can't tell that. You need to read it. Hmm. Yeah, you do. And you know, what's really kind of sad is that when I was in choirs, like in university and I was in choirs. No one ever asked, or I didn't even think to ask, or no one ever talked about the fact that I could have braille music for that, you
0: know. No. And then Just what happens the is, and that's it. Yeah, and then what happens is nobody asks for the braille music, so the braille music is never created. And then yeah. when you need the braille music, you haven't got it. And yeah. certainly, I really struggle because there's nothing easy in braille music, right? So, I mean, in a church context what we need is braille hymn books and Mm -hmm. to a lesser extent braille psalters because those are the mainstays of of church, right? You could be in the congregation and have a braille hymn book with music and be learning to read the music. And then by the time you're in the choir, you know, you've already started to learn hymns. So then you can move on to simple Mm -hmm. anthems and stuff like that. But the hymn books don't exist. So if the hymn books don't exist, how on earth do you teach people how to do this stuff?
2: Well, in yeah, speaking of with hymn books, because we did have, um, there was a braille version of whichever hymn book we were using at, at one church I attended. In music um, or just every, in words? Um, so it had music for some of them.
0: Okay. Um, I think it
2: was made like privately because we got yeah, basically well, I a whole have bunch of volume. Friend.
1: I have a friend, and um, it, this could be the same book, because I have a friend here in Ottawa that got someone to make a braille hymn book for her church
2: i'm trying to remember which hymnal it was and i can't quite remember and i don't but know I which one it was, was what i remember was being contacted in advance so i could figure out which volume to bring
0: yes yeah i remember all those so, yeah yeah
2: <laughs> which is you know the same thing with the bible like same deal Well,
3: the um, same, time with any
2: books.
1: The same thing with books yeah. in class like i remember saying books, to yeah. a teacher in high school Um, which chapter are we doing? And he said, bring the whole book. And I said, it's 21 volumes. I can't, yeah. yeah. No, not going (laughs) to
0: happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had this. I mean, I had hymn books, but they only had words in. So yeah, I mean, I still had to sort the volumes. I mean, it was funny. Um, I turned up, it was just after the pandemic. Uh, Well, in fact, still during the pandemic, uh, the cathedral got a new director of music from Canada. Um, Rachel Mann from Canada is our director (laughs) of music. And um, I'm sure the Canadian press had uh, lots of fun with that. And and there were lots of interviews, but anyway, um, yeah, Rachel started and she said, "Um, yeah, could, could you bring your green carol book with you next time? And I said, well, I know what the green carol book is, but can you tell me what we're singing from it? And she said, well, no, because I don't know what the choir is going to be able to sing because there was only half of us present and we hadn't sung for a while because of the pandemic and, and everything and she's like you you just bring the whole book and it's like yeah well I I, I, I really I I mean I don't have it but even if I did have it I can't I, I just can't do that I mean thankfully it was green carols you could sing most of it from memory but still yeah 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 yeah
1: yeah that's the thing with braille that people don't I mean I think they do understand it's bulky but they also don't understand that too you know that that because yeah, they don't
3: the think
2: name. it through like do you remember there was a meme a couple of years ago and it was um i don't know they picked something really popular like oh well, it was harry potter. potter
1: books yeah. yeah
2: and they had a picture of like the it all loaded on a cart or something or a couple mm-hmm. of carts yeah um and it was just i i i know you know yeah some even in the people in our in our own lives who work with us or live with us like they know it takes up more space but it just doesn't fix in their mind until no. they see something you know
15: really mm. wild
2: like all of that or like you know um all the volumes of the oxford english dictionary on a shelf or something like yeah that.
1: something like that um, and yeah and just they like realize, these visual <laughs> reminders for people yeah they realize that we can't um you know i remember even as a little kid carrying volumes of braille because i was such a keen reader like up to my head like with my chin sort of on the top of the pile, like, you yes. know, cause I didn't, I wanted to bring as many with me as I could. I didn't want to stop in the middle of a book or something, you know, like I just mm. remember having them all like, piles of books. Yeah. Good old Braille.
0: Oh yes. Isn't it great? indeed well it's half past midnight my time well <laughs> yeah, 28 you, 28 minutes hey I, I i love it i've gotten on 24 so i'm uh, thoroughly enjoying this because my bedtime naturally just <laughs> drifts later and later and later and so like to have an excuse like to be able to just tell someone hey i'm i'm working nights this week and for it to actually be true i mean oh it, it's it's wonderful i shall have the best night's sleep the best week's sleep in a very long oh, time well doing that's this.
1: good that's important um
0: but yeah, I I feel like probably we should start to wrap things up before I do. I mean, is there anything else that's sort of really just on your mind as, as we come to the end of today where you just think, yeah, we haven't talked about this and we really ought to?
13: Hmm.
0: I think for me, there was just so much to take in. I mean, I'll be listening to the podcast. I mean, I was on the podcast and I'll still be listening to it because I want to listen to all the stuff that I missed the first time round.
1: Yeah that was the same yesterday I felt I listened to it, but I want to listen to it again. Mm. Um, I guess I guess the things just things that we don't think about in our everyday use of Braille that come up, you know, like these digitizing things and different languages and different codes, different things. And I don't know, I just, I have to absorb it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only thing that I um, that I didn't mention that I had kind of written down was,
2: I know it was, it was back to our kind of Marrakesh Treaty discussion. And I know that there are lots of other um, so academic librarians and different types of librarians who are um, collaborating to develop kind of their how it is that they're going to put the the Marrakesh Treaty into practice for their specific uh, sector. And so I'm, I'm super curious to see how that develops with our music librarians. Um, or you know whether they team up with others or, or how that goes forward in terms of you know planning for for implementation and will we discover more of these more of these tidbits like you know how how different the code is or the um, the formatting um, and mm. the contextual information in other countries you know, in various countries so that's sort of what I'm kind of latched onto from today and I'm curious to I'd like to follow all those Marrakesh Treaty implementation.
1: I guess the other thing that struck me, too, was we do need to ask for Braille whenever we can ask for it. So we we were saying about the hymn books, like more people should go into their churches and say, I need this, you know, hymn book at all levels yes yeah we everywhere to going Menus, to church.
0: well yeah but i mean uh, at, at all levels as well you know we need to be going yeah. to churches and asking for it but then we also need to be going to the blindness agencies and asking for it and we need yeah. to be going to the hymn book publishers and asking for it and we yeah. need to be going mm-hmm. to you know the the religious authorities you know the the royal school of Church music and things like that over here and and asking yeah. for it and telling everybody how important it is
1: yeah and get everyone to ask for it like even even our friends that aren't you know do you have the copy of this in braille um and joining community choirs too like saying listen i want this in braille i'm not gonna put up with you know this other way of doing it that i've done forever and this i guess it's the same with all things braille like braille menus yeah, you can look it up online. Yeah, you can read ahead of time you all this. You know, these kind of things, like just always ask for Braille. I guess that's the thing that's striking me. Mm.
0: Well, I mean, and do it nicely and do it collaboratively. I mean, look, if you ask a church for a Braille hymn book and the Braille hymn book doesn't exist, there's not an awful lot that the church can no. do. But what the church can do is send an email on your behalf yeah. In addition to the email mm-hmm. that you've already sent. Right. So then, you know, the people haven't just got one person on their back. They've got two people and the church may be able to send an email that you can't send and say, look, uh, I have someone in my parish who needs this hymn book in my previous church. I also had somebody who would have benefited. And actually, I've been talking to my colleague at the church down the road and he would have someone as well and you know then you Mm -hmm. you start to get some dialogue and people start to realize actually this is really quite important yeah for
1: sure you
2: collaborate with those kind of um you know those micro level interactions that you have then you have more power to deal with things like publishers and um kind of macro level systems and institutions and things like that you can really develop some some allies in that
1: process of absolutely uh, and then the church could say to the publishers we need this in alternative formats like we need this you know, we need this in braille. We need it in large print or whatever else, you know, whatever they want. But again, we just have to keep advocating. And you're right. Absolutely, Matthew, in a nice way. And not to say, oh, it's the church's responsibility. Well, it's everyone's kind of responsibility together. But mm.
0: yeah. we can all play our part.
8: Absolutely.
0: So to sum up, um, I guess... Um, Ashley, for what from what you were saying, and possibly Kim as well, this was your first ICB meeting. I mean, are you inspired to come to the next one?
2: Um, I'm I'm definitely super curious. I'm I'm looking at my kind of um, I'm so, so curious about like when the next uh, when the next it's 2024 uh, event events be... will be happening, and kind of when you know thinking about whether. Uh, They might, you know, we might be hybrid or in person or all those, all those fun Mm. sorts of things. Yeah. Um, But definitely kind of, you know, those particular areas, because I love I love all of it. It's kind of the, you know, it's all things Braille. So it's wonderful. But I love all of those kind of workflows and remediation processes and um, all of these kind of problem solving elements to it. You get these people together who are very, very innovative at what they what they do. Yes. Um, So I never would have known how fascinating it all was if it hadn't been for our kind of virtual conference here
1: so i came in 2020 virtually i did but that was the first time
3: Mm
2: -hmm. um
1: and before that i was a bit scared to think about coming because i thought i mean i'm a i'm a long time braille like lifelong braille user but i thought i don't have much to offer because i don't i'm not a transcriber i'm not a i'm not a proofreader i'm not i'm not a major braille knowledge
3: Mm -hmm. person or something you know like yeah
1: I don't know how to phrase it but i just felt like maybe i'm not the person they need but the thing is we all are the people you Mm. know that they need you know like everybody plays a part in braille like i'm i'm a person that they need as well as you know people that know everything about code maintenance which which i don't know about that necessarily or Mm. whatever else we're all important in the in the scheme of it
20: well but
0: and just I, I... the amount you can learn from these things i mean i've been on the fringes of iceb for quite a while 2020 was the first general assembly that i'd attended the whole of and just i mean even if iceb don't need me per se you know the the amount that i learnt and the amount of uh, enthusiasm that i you know saw in that room i mean it it pushed me forward over the next two years and this has just rejuvenated me for the next two years
1: yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. It was just in my head that <clears> I thought I'm not worthy of that or something. I don't have the skills they need or something like that. Mm. But, but yeah, it's great. Lots of fun.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been a blast. Thank you very much to the two of you uh, for coming today. Just to look at uh, what's happening tomorrow. I'm being joined by Jen Golden tomorrow uh, in the uh, commentary position and. We're going to be, oh, this is, this is interesting. We have an invited speaker. (laughs) Yes. Another one. Uh, Philippa Campsy. She is the author of, and this is where refreshable Braille goes wrong. It's all been uh, underlined because it says there's a misspelling. Yeah, I hate
1: that. I don't Um,
0: like these. What is she the author of?
1: Um, (laughs) I I remember thinking it sounded really interesting. (laughs) I, I don't have it in front of me.
0: Unfortunately. Oh, so it's given me the link, but it's not given me the text of the link. That's not um, <laughs> that's not very useful. I think it's um, something about the history. It's, it's of the it is it's the, the hi- I can't remember what she's the what exactly the the article is called, but it is it's the history of Braille, and we all think that Braille came out of night writing. And uh, she's a Philippa is a Charles Barbier uh, expert, and she's here to tell us that Braille did not come from night writing. Um, so that mm-hmm. would be a really fascinating presentation and um it'd be i'd love to know what her sources are i'm not saying that she's wrong Uh, she's probably right actually but you know i i want to know why she's right so i can go and look this up for for ourselves not least because how on earth did we get it so wrong for all this time
2: i always enjoy these historical controversies like you know what happened with vincent van gogh where did braille really come what and was the war of the list?
1: dots like when it was all about those codes like mm, the war of the dots or whatever
0: they call Point. it yeah
1: and i was like oh this is a great title like this is awesome the war of the dots mm.
0: yeah so,
1: so that'll be really good i'm excited about that
0: yeah <clears throat> so that and an open discussion and then we have the code maintenance committee with kathy Reason. And needless to say, that takes the whole of the second half of the session. We have a whole 90 minutes dedicated to code maintenance. And there are lots of um, detailed things coming up, I think, in that Code Maintenance Committee report, which I will talk to Jen more about tomorrow, because Jen uh, knows a lot about code maintenance, is, is is on the CMC, and will be able to tell us more about all of that sort of stuff. So thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure to have Ashley Shaw and Kim Kilpatrick on the stream. Um, It's been a pleasure to have your company as listeners. We will get on and put this podcast up uh, just as soon as we can. But uh, for now, from Matthew Horspool and the rest of the team, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again soon. Bye for now.